Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jerry Van Eaton. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and thank you again for tuning in to another episode. Episode number 60, guys. I am pumped up. 60 episodes in. And this is another good one. We have uh, Clint Campbell from the Truth from the Stand podcast. So he's another podcaster, fellow deer hunter, and he's actually a Pennsylvania boy. We get into some interesting stuff like uh, Pennsylvania bucks, mountain habitat, and how he manages some of his private properties up there, uh, different ways to access through the hollows, out-of-state hunting. We actually talk some saddle hunting as well with Clint. He's another deer hunter like all of us, just ate up with this. Um, like I said, Truth from the Sand podcast. He's been around for a few years doing this as well, so we want to get him on here and hear what he has to say uh, regarding habitat and deer hunting. So thank you again, everybody, for tuning in. We have the new website launched, habitatpodcast.com. All of our podcast episodes are up there. We also have a bunch of new hats and decals up there, so be sure to get on there, guys, and check it out. Help support the podcast if you can. If you subscribe to the email tab on the homepage, you'll receive uh, a special email with a little bit of a discount, too, on some of that gear. So be sure to go to HabitatPodcast.com, check out all the new gear, and uh, submit your email for the subscription. Thanks for that, everybody. Next, we have uh, this episode brought to you by 5-2 Outdoors. Dale Wallace down in southern Michigan is within driving distance for a lot of our listeners. If you're looking for a new lazy man, deer blind for gun season coming up or for bow season yet coming up in the pre-rut. And he also sells Celtipackers. So 
you guys are thinking about getting a Packer Max for, uh, you know, this spring, the spring food plus, or if you're still working on some this fall, you, you know, be sure to pick up your Packer there. It's a nice central location for a lot of us deer hunters there in southern Michigan over on the Indiana side. So visit Dale at 5, the number 2, Outdoors on Facebook and .com. You'll be sure to uh, mention the podcast, and you will get no sales tax on a brand-new hunting blind. I'd also like to thank HuntWise. This is a premier hunting app you can find in any of your app stores, whether it's Apple or Google Play. And what they're doing for the pro members right now, they're doing a huge giveaway, over $500,000 worth of gifts, uh, top-name stuff. Guys, be sure to check them out at HuntWise.com or go ahead and download the app at HuntWise on any of phone app store locations. That's HuntWise.com. All right, so let's get into uh, Pennsylvania habitat and deer hunting with Clint Campbell from the Truth From The Sand podcast. And uh, lastly, just want to thank the listeners once again for tuning into the Habitat podcast as we're trying to become better habitat managers. Really appreciate you guys coming back for episode 60. So stay tuned. We have a couple great episodes after this one already recorded, along with a game plan or two coming up this week. All right, everybody, we're back with another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have Clint Campbell from Truth From The Stand Podcast on the line tonight, along with our co-host, Brian. How you doing, Clint? I'm good, fellas. Thanks for uh, having me on. Super stoked to uh, to be joining you as we were as we were talking about before we went live. It's always it's always a nice break. I like podcasting, but it's always a nice break to be on the other side of the microphone, being the one getting quizzed. So appreciate you guys having me on. Hey, no problem. Uh, like I said earlier as well, uh, that is nice. It doesn't happen too often to us, but it is fun when we do. And and uh, we've been listening to you for a long time now. How long have, have you been hosting your podcast for? Uh, I think it's funny because I just happened to look at something where the date was actually written down, and it was actually June 2016 was when it launched. Now, I actually think I even remember the date. I think it was the 6th of June, if I'm not mistaken. Which wow. My, yeah, my memory is usually not that good, but tonight, for whatever reason, it's firing on all cylinders. So, yeah, <laughs> June 2016. So it's going on. it would be four years this summer. Hard to believe. Oh, that is, yeah. I I wouldn't have said four years, but time does fly, especially these days. So, yeah, it's uh, it was wild because I didn't really have any intention, like of I, I to be honest, I had no clue how long it was gonna last. I, <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, when I started, I was like, man, if this thing if this thing lasts five episodes, I'll be surprised. <laughs> um, just just I mean, you know, there, there's work that goes into it and stuff like that. There's effort that's involved and you know, it's it's somewhat time consuming or can be, you know, and oh, yeah. I was just you know, I was just being honest with myself. I was like, uh this thing, you know, if it lasts a month that'll be awesome. I don't know if it's even gonna last that long, but here we are, you know, hundred and thirty nine episode, I think the hundred and thirty ninth episode I released today, so and still like it, still having fun, still meeting dudes, still that are into, you know, crazy about whitetails. I'm still nuts about whitetails and so I don't think that's stopping anytime soon so we'll see how long we can keep this train rolling awesome man well i guess just uh tell us a little bit more about what your podcast is about well then we'll get into your uh kind of background if you don't mind sure yeah the the podcast is truth from the stand uh as i mentioned it's been you know going on four years and you know what i think really the genesis of it was really you know i had moved back to pennsylvania um from orlando 
and was, you know, getting, you know, quote unquote back into hunting because I, I grew up hunting. I know we'll talk about this a little later, so I won't, you know, get into a bunch of details around that. But I live, you know, outside of Philadelphia. It's pretty urban, you know, and I was working in Center City at the time, so in the in the city, and there's not a lot of folks around here that I knew in general, and definitely the ones I knew that I, you know, at work and stuff like that, they weren't they weren't hunters at all, and so I really didn't have anyone to kind of, you know, share some of these experiences and like the way I was brought up, you know, in the country and stuff like that. Like I just didn't know a lot of people around here like that. And so I started listening to some podcasts and was like, oh, this is kind of cool. So I actually started writing first and started a blog. And um, it takes me a lot longer to write than it does to, to, you know, do a podcast. And so I thought, well, rather than writing, which is, you know, hard for me to do, um, why don't I just put myself behind a microphone and see if this will work, you know. And, and it really was a means for me to try to meet people in different places that shared similar ideas because it's like a, if I don't have any friends here necessarily it's like maybe I can make friends other places that are into the same stuff as me sure. and then fortunately you know I, I was able to do that and you know made some really great friendships and relationships and then and then it kind of ultimately spilled over as the podcast went into being able to connect with people who live around me and so now I have this like you know group of brothers that I spend time with and you know go to shooting range with and and, and hunt with and um, which has just been, you know, really cool to, you know, to, to watch develop. So that was really the reason for starting. It was completely selfish reasons for wanting to meet people. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great story, though, and, and it's honest. I mean, that's, yeah. I would say some, the best part of our, our podcast as well is the people we've met. And even whether it's yeah. online through Facebook or, or reaching out or at the shows or whatever, just a bunch of, like you said, deer nuts, you know. And yeah. Whether you have a couple in your town or within an hour from this is a good way to all get together and and talk and yeah. listen to it all the time. So, cool story. Yeah, man. I mean, it was, you know, it, it's that. And then, you know, the other part of it, too, is inherently having, you know, guests on and stuff like that. It's like I've been able to just expand my – like the learning curve, you know, for bow hunting, just say, for example, you know, I am ten, I am ten times – you know, and I'm, I don't claim to be a great hunter by any stretch of the imagination or a professional or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, my learning curve was expedited by having the podcast just by the ability to talk to, you know, guys like the Dan Enfalts of the world and, you know, the Don Higginses of the world. You know, these guys who are like just big butt killers, you know, the, the DeQuistos and stuff like that where it's like, you know, it, it's just the information you're able to get from them, right, is just like, beyond what you can get out of reading an article or whatever the case is, you know, and then, you know, I'm fortunate in, in the sense that some of these guys, you know, beyond having them on a podcast and I'm able to call some of them my friends that we actually will text and, and talk and, and stuff like that. And, and they're just excellent. You know, some of these guys are just top notch deer hunters and, and, you know, oh, and I feel fortunate that I can just hit them with a text and be like, Hey dude, I'm seeing this sign here. I've done X, Y, and Z. Like, what am I missing? And they'll be like, you know, and they'll text me back and give me some advice or whatever, and then they usually put me in a good place, and that's just, you know, invaluable to have, and it's just they're good dudes always willing to share. So that's meeting good people, man, and just, you know, trying to be a better deer hunter was really the name of the game. Yeah, that's that's one thing that we've really gained from having these podcasts and having all these different – So, uh, well, we, we call them experts, but the guys that we talk to, they don't want to be called that, but right. we, we like to refer to them as experts, and they, um, they've been a real blessing to have, like you said, just a text or a phone call away if you got something that 
a little bit out of our wheelhouse, that, that really opens up the doors for you. Yeah, it certainly it certainly does. You know, and it doesn't stop at just like deer hunting strategy. You know, some of it's like when we got, and I know we'll talk about some habitat stuff, but you know, when my dad picked up that most recent property, um, you know, I was looking at it and I was planning to maybe put some food on it and stuff like that, and I, I just kind of watched it for a year um, with trail cameras, never hunted it, and then I was watching kind of how the deer were using the the property and the the terrain and and, and so forth. And I had a really, you know, great conversation with Jeff Sturgis, you know, which, you know, anyone out there listening that doesn't, they don't know him, he's he's excellent when it comes to habitat management, habitat development, and basically building smarter mouse traps, you know, and, you know, he and or Steve Bartilla, Jake Ellinger, like there's a ton of guys out there that are really, really good, Don Higgins. But, you know, I was having a conversation with him and was saying, hey, I'm seeing this, I'm thinking of maybe playing a little, a little bit of food here. I have another spot over here that I could put it. And I just kind of gave him like in his mind's eye, kind of described the property to him. And, uh, and I kind of gave him what my, my idea was. And I was like, I don't want to mess up the current movement that's going on because it actually kind of works to my advantage. And he was like, no, he's like, I totally agree. He's like, I think what you're planning to do is what I would probably recommend as a start, um, which was cool. But I was like, sweet. I, I was actually right. You know, <laughs> it was, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, got it from the expert. He said I was right. So it's like, you know, even just stuff like that when I'm thinking about doing something where I'm like, hey, let me run it by a guy that knows way more than I do um, is just tremendously helpful. Yeah, that happens quite a bit. We always go to people we know and say, hey, how bad did I screw this up? And every once in a while, it's nice to get an attaboy and confirm that you're not completely screwing things up. Right, yeah. I, I like to refer my uh, my approach is that a blind squirrel will find a nut once in a while. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is great having another PA boy on here. Jared's That's up right. in Michigan, and uh, you know they they got a mecca of, of hunting tradition up there. But we're no slouches here in PA either. So it's nice to get a fellow Pennsylvania hunter on here too. That's right, man. I was, uh, I, you know, it, I wear that ba- badge proudly. You know, it's, uh, there are some days where I'm like, man, I really wish that I lived in Iowa. And look, if, if tomorrow someone said, hey, I got a farm for you to live on in Iowa, I don't know that I'd necessarily turn it down. That said, right. um, uh, you know, I have some buddies of mine that uh, have a, an outdoor company and uh, they, they run a, a podcast with their business as well. They, they did a session actually in talking just about, you know, do they feel like some of the best hunters they know or have met or that are revered, you know, come from traditionally, excuse me, hard to hunt states, right? And so they got and got into this debate as to whether or not do high pressure states create better hunters, right? Uh, was basically the, the the conversation they were having, and they made a lot of sense. And they were looked at some like you know license sales numbers and hunters per square mile numbers and stuff like that, and it made a lot of sense. And I, I've, I mean, not to be a jerk or anything like that, but I've always kind of felt that way. Um, and not to belittle anyone who hunts anywhere. I mean, if you kill big deer, you kill big deer. I think that that's kind of the – if you're killing consistently the, the top percent percentile of the, the bucks in your area, then I don't care where you hunt, and I think you're a good deer hunter. But I think there is something to be said when you're hunting, you know, high-pressure places like Pennsylvania and, and Michigan. And, you know, there's – Plenty of dudes I know who are great hunters that don't kill a deer every year, don't kill a deer every two years, you know what I mean? Right. Um, just because they're looking for a certain type of animal um, that is extremely elusive in the Keystone State or in or in Michigan. Um, you know, I always kind of say, you know, for me, you know, I think my goals over the years have changed. Um, I think for me now it's, it's really Pope and Young is what I'm looking for because I hunt, you know, 
even though we have some family property and I do some, I do some habitat stuff on it and stuff like that, but I, I probably do 95% of my hunting on, on public land, whether it's in-state or out-of-state. Um, it's what's closest to me and most accessible. And there's part of me that really likes that, that challenge of, the, of having to hunt where everyone else can hunt and trying to locate a good deer and then trying to go kill that good deer. So, um, you know, even on PA public land, my criteria is kind of, you know, Pope or better. Um, and that's kind of what I set my sights on. And, you know, every year I seem to have a couple of them, you know, that I can chase. Um, not necessarily I, – I, I eat tag soup frequently, um, you know, but, um, you know. It is, it is what it, it is what it is. You know, the chase is still just as exciting. Um, yeah, of course I'd like to put some, you know, have some deer hit the dirt. Um, but it's also kind of helped me too, just like in terms of learning, you know, it's like I've learned way more hunting public dirt than I did. I think hunting, hunting the private dirt that I've had access to through the years. Um, I think you just have to, I think you have to hunt smarter. I think it forces you to hunt a little bit more aggressively, which I think can be good. Uh, can be detrimental at times, but for me, it's been it's been I think a blessing for me, um, and I think it makes you think about how you set up a little bit more strategically, right? Because you're not going to hunt the same deer year over year because chances are it didn't make it through. Um, so it's forced me to more to like I don't hunt per se like a specific deer, um, and I've said this before. It's like I try to hunt terrain features on whatever land I'm hunting that have shown or proven that mature deer like to use those specific terrain features. Um, and so that's kind of how I go about trying to get into mature deer um, in those public places is, is focus on those key terrain features versus trying to find a specific deer to hunt. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned goals. We we talk a lot about that on this podcast and, and keeping things in perspective where you're at. Yeah. I, I tell guys a lot. You know, we have a lot of conversation. I say, you know, Pope and Young, um, the 125 minimum, there, there's a number on that for a reason. That's a nice deer. Yeah, just about anywhere so. in the country. I mean, you're talking yep. uh, the, the Golden Triangle, three, four, five states out west maybe. That's, you know, something that you're obviously not going to shoot because you've got bigger ones around the area. But anywhere in the east, if you're taking a 125-inch buck, that's a nice buck anywhere on the east coast. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, and look, if, you know, if, if I shot a deer from, you know, if I was in a tree and I shot a deer and I got down and it was 120 inches and not 20, 125, would I be upset? No. I wouldn't be, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to gauge him, you know, within, within right. reason. Cause you know, it's, I, I'm not perfect at being able to tell what size the size of deer is, you know, but the point being is that I'm trying to find a relatively mature animal for the year area I live in. Right. And which for PA, it's like, if you're shooting, if you're targeting 125 inch deer, there's a pretty good chance that deer's probably three and a half. Right. Um, you know, the statistics in PA, I forget exactly what they are, but I want to say something like 60%, if not more than the bucks killed in PA, I think I saw in a QDMA report or a year and a half old, I, I roughly, right? Like they're that's roughly their age, like year and a half to two and a half years old. So sure. most deer aren't even making it to like even semi maturity, if you want to call it semi maturity, right? And a four year old in PA is, you know, I'm just be completely honest. You know, even on our family farm, there was, you know, one that I hunted this, this deer that I hunted for year I watched for three years and I hunted him for about a season and a half. Um, he was the only four-year-old deer I'd ever seen on that property or in right. Pennsylvania in my entire life. Um, you know, so, you know, for, for whatever that's worth, they're, they're not common animals in Pennsylvania. Um, and so that's really how I judge, you know, it's like 125, you know, Pope and Young, but I'm really looking for a three-and-a-half-year-old, you know, and I just kind of use that size as like a marker to say if he's 125 inches, he's probably three-and-a-half in PA. 
Sure. So let's uh, back you way up back in the day in Pennsylvania and, and tell us a little bit about Clint, where you started at, where you hunted. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was born, actually, oddly enough, I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. My dad was in the military. Um, and I was born on a naval base, but he moved back to PA when I was a year old because that's where my mom and um, my dad's family was all from. Um, you know, I was raised in rural Pennsylvania, you know, graduating class in my high school, I think was 96 people. So it was pretty small, pretty small town. Uh, we had a back 40, you know, we had like 36 ish acres or so that, you know, was, was ours. And then my grandfather had a farm, um, you know, that was a couple hundred acres that was, you know, just down the road near the river. Um, and that I, I really didn't hunt his property much. I basically hunted, hunted our back 40 for the most part. Um, grew up in a traditional, you know, Pennsylvania kind of gun hunting family. You know, my dad didn't really do a lot of bow hunting necessarily. And what bow hunting he did do, he, you know, he used a tradition, he used traditional archery equipment. Um, he never hunted out of a tree stand or el- from, from elevation ever. So I never grew up, everything I did hunting growing up was always from the ground and then kind of like spot and stock style. Um, cause that was how my dad hunted and that was, you know, that was how I learned. Um, you know, so there was a lot of, you know, there was no ground blinds. It was, you know, old school of, you know, sitting up against a tree or sitting on a stump or, you know, trying to brush yourself in with something. And then if it would be windy or rainy or whatever, it would be, you know, basically stalking, trying to find, you know, bedding areas or, you know, um, you know, clear cuts that were on the property or what have you that we were, you know, trying to move deer out of or find where they were at and, you know, basically sneak up on them and kill them. That was kind of the, that was how we hunted. Um, you know, I didn't realize it until recently, actually, you, you know, when we started talking, it prompted me to kind of think about it and that property, you know, looking back on it, it's like, I would actually kind of like to go back and hunt it now, you know, not that it's in a great spot as far as like quality of animal per se, but in hindsight, like it's a really cool, it was a really cool piece of property. Um, it had been clear cut right before we had it, like certain sections of it. Cause my grandfather actually owned it. My dad got it from my grandfather and before we bought it. He removed, you know, he did a select timber cut and just made some gnarly, gnarly bedding areas. And I didn't know what I was doing as a kid, but pretty much every deer I ever shot off of that property, I shot out of one of those clear cuts in the, in, in the bedding area. And so, I don't know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was hunting bedding before it was cool, maybe, <laughs> partially. I didn't even think about it until, <laughs> you know, until you guys reached out and was like, hey, let's do a podcast. Yeah. Um but uh, yeah, I mean that's how I grew, that's how I grew up, and it was pretty traditional Pennsylvania, you know, hunting family man. Where it's like, you know, when I turned 12 years old, it was a birthright, you know, to, to start hunting. There was never a question as to whether or not I was going to hunt. It was just a matter of like when you turn 12. You know, it's, I remember my dad bringing game home. He, he was real into turkey hunting and small game and stuff like that. So I started like most everybody else of shooting squirrels and. You know, this is back in the day whenever there was still, you know, ringnecks and stuff around. We would go do some ringneck, you know, hunting and jump some rabbits and, and stuff like that and, and started hunting whitetails. And that was just, I mean, yeah, I just, I loved hunting whitetails, man. It was just, you know, one of my favorite things to do as a kid growing up. I, I just, I couldn't wait for the season to come in. Um, you know, had no clue what I was doing, but I loved every second of it. Uh, and that was really kind of how I was brought up in it, man. You know, my dad's still a big hunter. You know, he, he likes to do a little traveling to, to hunt. He lives in the Carolinas now. And, uh, you know, we, we try to do some trips and some hunts together, you know, as often as we can, but not nearly as often as, uh, as other of us would probably like. But that's kind of like yeah. my, my, hunting, my hunting background. I didn't get into bow hunting until I was, like, 30. You know, that was when I started bow hunting. It was moving back to Pennsylvania and um, 
you know, I just wanted to get back into hunting. So I did, you know, I was hunting turkey season in one year with some buddies and actually was maybe a little hungover that day. I might have fell asleep in the woods, maybe not. <laughs> I'll keep that between us. Um, and uh, I was just watching this chasing going on. And, you know, I really didn't know much about deer biology at that point, you know, it, it, in uh, or, you know, the deer's, you know, um, breeding cycles and, and, and stuff like that. Like, I really just have a clue because we never talked about those things growing up. You know, it's like when I say I was in a traditional Pennsylvania hunting family, it was rifle hunting, brown us down type of thing. Right. You know what I mean? Like, there wasn't a lot of conversation about strategy. Plenty of family drove deer. My dad and I really never drove deer. I, I don't, it wasn't like he was opposed to it, but I just he felt it was unsafe, so we just never participated in it. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, so – I didn't know a whole lot about or really anything about like what the, what archery hunting was all about. And I was, you know, I kind of woke up <laughs> off the ground and was like, saw these deer chasing and this is fall turkey. And, uh, I was like, man, what is going on? And I just, I sat there and I watched it. There's a couple bucks, you know, two bucks chasing these two does around this hollow. And, uh, I watched it for a little while and then they never came back. And so I got up and walked back up to like the cabin. And I was like, talking to my, my, father-in-law's buddy and I was like man I saw like the craziest thing today I was like these deer are running around chasing each other I was like I've seen it them chase each other you know before like playing playing I was like but this seems different and he was like yeah he's like you know this is you know we're getting into pre-rut you know and I was like well what's pre-rut you know it's like this is how naive I was and you know he started explaining it to me and uh and I was like dude I was like natural deer movement I was like and he was like yeah he's like it's, you know it's bow season now and I was like I was like, I'm getting a bow. <laughs> I was like, because I want to see more of that. I was like, whatever that was, I want more of that. And that's basically how it happened, man. I ended up hunting my first year with a with a recurve. That's uh-huh. how it started. Um, and then kind of and then kind of went from there. And that was kind of how I fell in love with bow hunting. It was just the strategy of it and um, how much closer you had to get and how much more intimately yeah, knowledgeable of the yep. animals you were hunting and the terrain you were hunting and like the land you're hunting and how they use the land, how they move. It's like it all just you know fascinated me. I have a yeah, I have an inquisitive mind like that where I get into strategy because that's kind of what I do for a living, you know, for my job is strategic work. And so being able to dissect puzzle pieces and putting them back together just really appealed to me. And I just fell head over heels. And here we are four years later with a podcast and talking to you guys. <laughs> oh, like it was meant to be. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, for sure. Well, not four years later, I guess like 10 years later, but four years later with a podcast. But yeah. No, that's awesome. I think. Uh... We have a lot in common in terms of how we started. I mean, my dad was the same way, just pretty much a gun hunter, um, as far as I know, at least when I was alive. And then uh, just wanting to get out there, and you know, as soon as you turn 12, it's like, let's go. And then yep. started with a recurve, and same kind of thing. Um, I like hearing that family history, and you know, about our listeners. I'm sorry, our guests is kind of one of my favorite parts to hear about the backstories and and kind of get to know you a little better. So appreciate you going into that. Um, yeah, for sure. Now, when you say you're you're back forty in your your family property, and then a piece that your father-in-law or your father I can't remember which one you said got recently, um, mm-hmm. are those two different locations and two different properties? Yeah, they are. Because my okay. dad sold that back forty we had growing up, and then he moved to the to the Carolinas. So he lives down there, but he bought a property in Pennsylvania oh, here, okay. like, two year two years ago back in his uh his hometown, like his home place where he grew up. Um, it's, it's basically a mountain that he hunted growing up. Um, oh, very cool. And, uh, yeah. So there was a piece of property that became available up there. There's nothing on it except it's, it's a basically a hunting property. He's going to put a structure on it here. 
I think this year and the next year, year and a half, but it's basically just there to hunt and for recreation. And then that one's about 60 acres. And then my father-in-law, we have a family property down there, an old farm that we, we rent out some of the fields um, to the neighboring farmer. Um, But that one I believe is 260 acres. Nice. Um, And then there's another property that is my, mother and father-in-laws by their house and that's like another 55 acres i don't hunt that one very often we don't do any habitat work there you know every now and then i'll throw a hunt at it there are some decent bucks on it that i'll get on camera there from time to time but i'm just usually not there often enough to uh to hunt it but yeah so those are like those are the three family pieces that we have that i have access to oh that's awesome man you're a lucky guy that's really cool um where would you say that you started cutting your teeth on the habitat side of things was it on any of these properties and Let's go into that a little bit. How'd you get started doing yeah. habitat work? Yeah, so you know, when I got into bow hunting, it was you know my dad didn't have any, you know, didn't have the property. Of course, this was you know tennis years ago or whatever. Um, whenever when I got into it, my father-in-law had that farm, that 260-acre farm, and that was when I moved back to Pennsylvania. I was you know I would gun hunt there with him, turkey hunt with them, or whatever the case was. Um, and and that was kind of where I saw those deer and what, where I kind of was like, hey, I want to start bow hunting. It's like this is the type of deer movement you see. It's like I don't want to shoot running deer anymore that someone chased. I want to <laughs> shoot deer doing deer stuff. That's what I want to do. Right. And I saw that on his on his property. Um, and so that was kind of where I started bow hunting was on, on that property. And we had, you know, like I said, 260 acres, um, a lot of hardwood uh, in there. In there, there was a, a creek bottom as well. There were some deep hollows with some like kind of steep ridges, and there was a front side of a mountain that we that we owned. So the habitat was pretty diverse. And the um, the back side of the mountain, the neighbor side of the mountain, was actually had been clear cut years ago, and it was just like Vietnamese jungle thick. You know what I mean? Just like stupid, stupid thick. Um, but we had all these fields that we weren't doing much of anything with, and we had some of them in the CREP program. And anyone out there listening, like the CREP program and PA is what you would kind of refer to as the like a CRP type program in the Midwest. Okay. So basically, they'll pay they'll pay you money. You know, the state will pay you money to basically not uh, not farm your fields for to to reduce the amount of uh, herbicides and, and chemicals that are placed into the soil that eventually leach off into um, the, the 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 water tributaries, right? And b- since that stream was there, that was a tributary to a larger body of water, and so we were eligible for that program. I think is how it worked, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So they paid us. They paid so much money to my father-in-law for him to not farm these, and they just you know they come out. I think Penn State comes out and they plant some like grasses, summer grasses, and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, so we had that going on and, and when I started kind of bow hunting, I wanted to, you know, I got kind of the strategy part of it, like I'd mentioned was really what interested me. And so at first, you know, I was, I had a steep learning curve in terms of to understand really how to bow hunt, right? It's, it's kind of a lifelong evolution. It seems like, you know, at least in, in my opinion. And the first thing for me was, you know, I was hunting this private piece. And I was really interested in, in, in guys like Steve Bartilla and Jeff Sturgis and Jake Ellinger, like the way they would talk about building smarter mousetraps. And that just really appealed to me from like a puzzle building perspective. And I was like, if I can manipulate something to put deer where I want to put them in in the time frames in which I would like for them to be there, like that just seems really cool. You know, and so 
I started just reading as much as I could read, listening to podcasts, watching videos on different ways to manipulate habitat, you know, what good options are, what, you know, what options you should consider, you know, cover versus food, et cetera, et cetera, the different times of year, what's going to be the priority. And that was really how I started learning, you know, deer behavior, deer biology was trying to get better in tune with what their needs were during the different times of the year, which, yes, I was working on habitat ideas, but it was really helping me understand what deer need and then fast forward to today, like how I can better hunt them knowing, knowing that information. Um, so the first thing was I kind of looked at like the, the food, like what we had for food, and we really didn't have much food because the, the timber that we have on the property is all pretty big timber, right? And I knew my father-in-law wasn't going to be like super into me saying, hey, I'm going to take a chainsaw and cut all your woods down. You know what I mean? So I don't, he wasn't going to be real hip to that. So I was like, you know what, I can probably convince him to put some food in, especially if I can tell him that, you know, it'll benefit his hunting like as the years go by, right? Um, and so that was basically what we did. Is like we started with a food plot. I was actually pretty ambitious. I did like a five-acre clover field was the first plot wow. I put in. Nice. Um, yeah, which was pretty a pretty big undertaking. <laughs> and I have to say, like, it turned out killer. And it actually lasted like its full five years. Like we put it in and kept it for five years. Um, nice. You know, the hard part was was to temper everyone who hunted there's expectations on what was going to happen, right? Because – you know, the first inclination of everybody that hunted there was they wanted to hunt around it, mm-hmm. right? And so I tried to stress to everyone that, you know, I never hunted around it because I was like, I want deer to be comfortable there, and I want to be able to pick them off on their way to and from, right? I want Perfect. it to be an attractive that I can use to intercept. I don't want to necessarily hunt on the food. I want to hunt, you know, off the food at, pl- at pinch points and funnels, which will allow, you know, give me a shot opportunity. Um, you know, so that was the hard part of keeping, keeping people off it, but that was really my first kind of endeavor into, um, doing any type of habitat management. And then from there, you know, I started looking at, you know, how could we improve the cover? Cause I knew the cover was like our biggest downfall is that we just didn't have, we just didn't have enough. Um, you know, and then in understanding that you have to kind of look at your neighborhood when you're doing habitat updates, you know, we were in heavy ag land. I mean, this properties in the middle of nowhere and we're surrounded by a couple large you know larger farms than ours that are actually being cash farmed you know so they've got you know corn and soybeans and alfalfa and like whatever you know whatever cash crop they're growing that season or that year um and i knew that we were fighting a losing battle trying to win on food and so I, I still wanted to have food there, and we centrally located it in the middle of the property. That way it would draw deer to the center. At least the deer that were on our property, we could hopefully keep them on our property, right? That was kind of the idea. And then after that, like, we started seeing some gains. We started seeing better deer, um, you know, especially the past couple of years. Unfortunately, I really don't hunt it much anymore. But the past couple of years, we've actually, you know, have seen best caliber of deer that we've seen there ever. And I attribute it to the fact that, you know, we started putting food in a, in a couple of different places, um, and the deer that live there now have never not had a constant food source 365 days a year. Um, you know, because what we ended up doing was is that we did that clover field the first year, and it was great. And so the next year, you know, we had another field that was kind of back and kind of really secluded, and it was only about an acre, and I ended up doing sun hemp, soybeans, sun hemp and soybeans and that, during the summer, and then I went in and overseeded it with brassicas and turnips, uh, some kale, uh, and some winter wheat. 
and as like a as a as like a cover crop that came up yeah. after the 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 after the uh, beans turned brown, whatnot. After the yeah, after the beans after the beans went away, and you know, and the uh, and the and, and the hemp kind of you know died off. They had a a crop there for you know late fall into winter that would get them through the winter months until the clover field popped again in early spring. You know what I mean? And so we did we did that, and then so they had food on the property, you know, all all year oh, round. Yeah. yeah. Which was which was awesome, and it created some great hunting opportunities as well because that back field was really kind of secluded, um, and you had decent access to get back there to hunt. Unfortunately, the front part it was usually a cornfield or is now an alfalfa field. It's really hard to access that part of the property, so it's like you. It was smart to put food strategically in that back corner because you wouldn't have to bother that. You would bump deer going into the field if you're hunting hunt in the morning. You know, getting into that first field. Um, that was just a much larger field, but you could kind of there was a an old logging road you could kind of dip down in and kind of cut down the hollow, and then you could get down into stand placements down there, um, down to the creek bottom, without disturbing that other field in the morning to catch all the traffic coming off that field in the morning back down to the hollow because they like the bed on that creek bottom, and they also like the bed over on the neighbor's property because they had a bunch of deadfall over on that on that bank across from the across the creek. Okay. Um, and how did you? How did you plant those those beans and that sun hemp and whatnot? I mean, what kind of tools were you working with back then? And uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up access as well. That's something we talk about. Oh, geez, probably just as much as opening up the, the canopy to let the sunlight in is, is how to access these places. And it seemed like you learned something on how to do that on that back field. Um, maybe go into some of the equipment, how you planted that, and then maybe how you learned to use that right access. Yeah, so... The equipment, so that piece, you know, so I, mean, I guess we can talk about my dad's piece here in, in a minute, but just to kind of give some perspective or some context. So my dad's piece is, it has in the past been by hand, and so like a rototiller nice. and a rake and a hoe <laughs> and a hand feeder and, and those types of things. Yes, sir. Um, and, and then, you know, I have used a four-wheeler with an implement on that piece as well. My father-in-law's piece, which is that larger five-acre track and that other, you know, acre acre and a half of sun hemp and, and and beans fortunately we have a small you know it's not a commercial size tractor but it's you know i forget how many horsepower it is but it's it's got hydraulics and it's got you know a bucket on the front and you know it's enough to get the job done and so we would basically go in and kill everything off usually use a four-wheel with a sprayer on the back um do whatever killing i need to do and then um I would go in with the with the tractor, and we had an old harrow. You know, we didn't have a disc or anything. We just had an old harrow that was laying around, and uh, yeah, I rigged that thing up to hook to the tractor, and just drug it around the field, ripping up the you know just wanted to scratch up the surface. You know, I learned the lesson the hard way the first year when we put that clover plot in. We actually had the farmer come over with a with like a five bottom plow and turn the soil over, um, which was a really really bad move because we ended up fighting. I mean, the plot was strong, but it took a lot of work because we we stirred up that entire dormant seedbed. Right. And so we fought, like, all the different, you know, native and invasive grasses, broadleaves, et cetera, that were going to come up when we disturbed that seedbed. So that was lesson learned, you know, it, early in my <laughs> food plotting days it was to not, you know, turn the soil over like that if you can help it just because you're going to run into a lot of, you know, a lot of – um, competition problems with, with weeds and so forth. Yeah, we got or, smart or if then you finally do, after I've been, that. I've been told if you do that sm- turn that over. Sorry, if you, if you do turn that over um, year after year, I've been told that if you do the same depth, like maybe you mm-hmm. rototill every year, you rototill the same depth of like four inches every year, you'll eventually mm-hmm. burn through that dormant seed bed with uh, some proper 
herbicide care or whatnot. But I can right. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, yeah, we've gone through the same issue here. So sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you. yeah, no, that no, that would totally make sense. You know, the only I think downside for in that instance for me was that this was a uh, a perennial plot. Yeah. And so we weren't going to turn it over again for like five years if we could help it because we were trying to make the investment once of doing the work and the seed, the spray, like everything and, you know, the time that it takes and do it once and then just be able to manage it by mowing and spraying, you know, a couple times a year. Um, when we went to the other plot, that one we did the sun hemp and the beans and stuff and then overseeded with the, with the, with the fall mix, uh, I just used a harrow on that and just – basically scratched up the ground enough to where I could get good seed to soil contact. Um, and that did the trick. And actually I learned along the way too. It's like once I did that, before I planted, I actually let, you know, I'd let two weeks go by and let anything green come up that got disturbed. And then I would go spray that, kill that. And then I would go back over and seed and then call to pack it and, and then, and then leave it. Because now I've essentially killed anything that was dormant that was going to come up, and I shouldn't have any competition for anything that I just that I just uh, sowed. And then that all came up like gangbusters, and that was a great plot. Um, we did do some other plots. I did a one year. I didn't have a lot of great success as much. Well, I had success on, on one plot. Um, but on that same property, I think the first year, in addition to that five-acre clover plot, I think I planted eight what I would call kill plots. So I actually went into the woods, you know, with a an ATV, you know, and, and like a hand sprayer and would spray a plot like where I wanted a stand location. And I would spray it, you know, whatever, you know, was there, whether it was like a grass on an old mulligan road or whatever. And I would spray and kill all that. And I would basically use, you know, a hoe and, and like a rake and I would scratch the, the surface, you know, and I would use some throw and grow on it and was and basically planted plots where I would get getting enough direct sunlight in the timber to create little places near bedding where I was trying to get deer just to stop on their way to their primary food source. Um, was also trying to delay them from going to the neighbor's property in daylight. So I was placing them strategically on the perimeter of the property to try to stop them before they would cross the property line. So and was that working that was for some, you? Um, yes and no. I had one plot like that that worked really well. The ones that were in the timber didn't work nearly as well as I would have would have liked to so I, I, I the years after that i had a, had abandoned it um not because they wouldn't work but i recognized pretty quickly that i didn't have the time to manage them properly to, to actually get them to work okay gotcha. um you know it was uh it, the soil in those areas needs some pretty serious uh, amending um and i just didn't have the time and probably just didn't have the patience honestly to to, to work at it um as well, I mean, that property's three hours from where I live, so it was a travel back on weekends to try to get work done and work all day Saturday, part of the day Sunday, and then drive three hours back home, you know, type of thing. So, um, which logistically it made it, made it, you know, somewhat challenging. So, of course, that was that was really the food plotting and stuff that I did on that property. And we did do a little bit of timber work um, the one year as well, like off of one of the food plots. Because what I wanted to do at one point was, I, you know, the does does will take the first set of good bedding off of food, right? It's like anytime you walk around a food a food source, if it's thick and brushy, you're bound to jump does out. You might jump some bucks during the summer if, you know, they're bedding off the food during the summer when they're all being cordial with one another and they're, you know, not as freaked out about social anxiety. But as you get into, you know, October, as we are, you know, getting close to October now, you know, late September, get into October, certainly once you get into late October, it's like, you know, those bucks want nothing to do with anybody. 
They want to get away from the social pressure as much as possible and away from each other as much as possible. And those does will still continue to bed around that food source because their primary goal is bedding and, bedding and cover, right? So it's like if I have cover, you know, bedding here and I've got food here, there's no reason for me to go anywhere else. And so they'll set up shop there. And so if you walk around that, you know, you'll often often jump those. So in knowing that, you know, and I think I learned this from Jake Ellinger or Jeff Sturgis or whoever it was, you know, bucks will often take in that secondary bedding that is the next best bedding beyond that doe bedding, right? So if that's 200 yards away or 300 yards away or whatever it is, that's usually where they'll try to hole up so long as, you know, all things being equal, right? So there's not pressure, they're not getting bumped out of it, whatever the case is, right? Um, speaking in generalities here. Um, so in kind of knowing that, like, what we lacked around the food, like the one, that small food plot we did the beans and stuff in had great cover around it, like awesome cover, was a killer rut spot. That four-year-old deer I was telling you about at the beginning, that was where I had an, I had four different encounters with him and almost put an arrow in him after hunting for like a year and a half. And that was a, a killer spot. Um, but the other big food plot, that five-acre plot, had nothing for cover around it. And so I wanted to put some cover near that food, so we actually went in uh, to an area behind that food source and did some, you know, cutting of just, like, trash trees, what I'll call them, you know, trees that, you know, aren't money trees, right? Yeah, right. right. So we weren't, t- weren't taking any money trees down. And just trying to create a bit of a, you know, a, a hurricane blowdown kind of mess or whatever. Let some sun in, let some, you know, some, some gnarly briary, you know, stuff kind of growing. It will also provide a food source, but more importantly, provide them side cover and additional places to bed. And once we did that, we saw, you know, some uh, – I, I went in and I would check it after, you know, first year just to see if we had deer bedding there. And we, we did. There were there were doe beds in there, which is exactly what we wanted. And that was ultimately why I think I started having encounters with that other deer that I'd watched for a couple of years without seeing him on our property in daylight is because he was now – he was still bedding on the neighbors, but he was now bedding much closer than he was previously because the does were having – when they were leaving that food source, they were having to basically go to the neighbors to bed. And by pulling them onto our property, it allowed him to bed, I believe, in that next best bedding, which would have been right on our property border, which then those subsequent years, I started seeing him in daylight. So that was kind of – those were basically the projects that I kind of dove into on on that particular property. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up because a lot of guys spend a lot of time focusing on, like, a primary bedding area, and then you end up at the dough factory sometimes planting some mm-hmm. of the food, which I'm, I'm starting to run into that problem myself. But, uh, yeah, just creating a couple little blowdowns, get the sunlight in there, and just adding, stacking a couple more, like you said, that's that's a great tip, and it doesn't really take a whole lot of sweat equity to get, get a big payback out of it. No, I mean, we went in with a chainsaw. It was an afternoon, you know, because we, we basically did a sample, right? We didn't want to, you know, my father-in-law wasn't, again, he wasn't real keen on me, like, saying, hey, let's go cut a bunch of trees down, um, you know, because just being honest here, he likes the look of a nice big open set of timber. He just thinks it's pretty, it right? Is. And it we is, all know yeah. that, you know, pretty woods makes pretty crappy deer hunting in most <laughs> cases, <laughs> you know, so – um, I was more on, like, I want it as ugly as possible. And so we basically agreed, like, hey, let's take this section and let's give it a trial run and see how it works. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and so we did that and we saw some success. And so, you know, since he's done a few other small, like, little select cuts here and there, nothing too major, probably about the same size. And when I say we did something small, it's like, you know, people don't need to go in and cut down three acres. You know, it's, you know, it's not what we did. I mean, we we did a pretty significant cut on what would probably be about, you know, if you put it all together, maybe a football field swath 
through the timber, you know, maybe a little less than the football field, you know, 70 yards, something like that. Just enough to make it a mess, give it some edge, you know, and sure enough, like trail showed up on the edge on both sides, you know, so it was, it worked as you would, as you would hope it would, as you would hope it would work, um, which was, which was really cool to see because I, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was like, I read some stuff, let's try this. And then <laughs> when it finally worked, I was like, well, I was like, no way. I was like, this actually works. Yeah, that's awesome. Now you mentioned some uh, logistical and soil challenges. What, what other challenges do you have in that area of Pennsylvania with uh, food plots? Yeah, this, the soil, you know, the pH in most of these cases are pretty, or were pretty, uh, well, I guess the, I guess the farm we did the clover plot on wasn't too bad. Um, you know, I think like anywhere else, like the, the, the challenge is, you know, really weed control, like having a plan for that. Like we didn't have a plan for that when we went into the clover field and it, it, and it almost doomed us on that one. Um, we did have a plan when we went into the second field, when we did the second plot. And that one turned out year over much better, um, you know, and just, we never had a problem with that one because we, we, we had figured out how to manage it. I think the other challenge is, too, is that, you know, what I was kind of up against in this one is that where we placed the food um, probably was not really where I would have placed the food had I had complete rule and access over everything. Um, we were using, you know, part of it was that, you know, it wasn't my property, it's my father-in-law, so part of it had to be in agreement with him, of course. And, you know, I probably would have preferred to, you know, clear out a, a patch of timber and place the food plot somewhere else that was a little bit more secluded um, and actually take that field and let it kind of go dormant to a degree, maybe do a burn and get all the native grasses kind of coming back and let it just get plunky and gnarly because I was like, we could create five acres of probably some of the best bedding that you would see on any property for 10 miles if we would do that. You know, just a big field that, you know, just gets, you know, six, seven, eight feet tall and gnarly and then starts growing some brush in it and just like just funky stuff, you know, because that's what, that's what deer like. Um, and that was, that was really what I wanted to do. Um, but he, again, likes to see like a nice – field you know he he likes the aesthetics of of, of, of things um, and I'm more into the functional or functionality of things how is it going to help you know whatever right. my end goal whatever my end goal is so I would have preferred to go in and have less food and say cut a an acre of timber out and and plant the food in the middle of the timber where it's centrally located exactly in the property you know that way we'd have a little better access because this farm historically has always had really hard access because all the fields are at the road frontage of the property, obvious, you know, which makes it convenient for farming, right? Set up for farming, not hunting. Um, so there was always access challenges because to get to some of the best places on the property to hunt, you almost always had to go through a field of some sort, which, you know, which really kind of killed morning hunts, you know, um, or yep. you had to walk the, you know, neighboring property line all around the edge of their property and our property down a hollow up the creek bottom, you know. And so it would take you, you know, 30, 40 minutes on a piece of private land to get to your stand location, which is often what I did. You know, I'd take the long way around because I didn't want to blow deer out of the field because you know, I wanted to hunt those deer. Um, so that always kind of set up as a challenge. But, you know, the other part of it was is like there's a handful of guys that hunt that property, you know, and so not everyone was as diligent about access as I was, you know, and so – you know, a lot of times I'm accessing something correctly only for someone else to come through, you know, 
20 minutes after I'm in my stand to walk through the middle of the field. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was, you know, those were, those were a lot of the challenges. Some of them were personal, you know, some of them were, you know, land. Um, but, you know, but nonetheless, you know, access on that property was a challenge. The best access I have is the one that I was describing earlier was that around that, we called it the narrow neck field, which is that small acre and a half ish that we did in that, you know, sun hemp and, and beans and fall mix. Um, because the deer I wanted to hunt, I could walk through the front hay field and wasn't really worried about blowing deer out of that because those weren't the ones I was planning to hunt. The ones I was going to hunt anyway were going to be the ones in that secondary field. And so I would just kind of use that field as access to hop down into this hollow and then up to my stand location. And those deer would be none the wiser. Um, you know, then started I, I really started hunting that property probably more in evenings just because my access was better for evenings too. Um, and I recognized the hunting mornings a lot of the time, you know, was often a waste of my time. So decided to figure out how to hunt it strategically to, to try to, you know, to see the things I wanted to see. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a good thing to remember because we get caught up in, in the habitat. And you, you could have the, the greatest farm in the world as far as deer, food, and habitat. But if, if your access isn't right, it's, it's not going to do you any good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I ended up finding one way into the property that was pretty good for almost any any location I had set up. Like there was one way I could get in, and I basically was there wasn't any bedding I was going through. It was a big hollow. I could stay low in the hollow, so I wasn't you know being being seen because you know in the mornings they would often. So let me put it this way, I guess they always traveled up one you know that classic up one two thirds of the side of the of the ridge, right, is often where the, the deer were traveling. They are very rarely were in the bottom unless they were crossing from one ridge to the other ridge. They might cut down through, right? And I kind of knew where those places were. So walking this way in, I would never cross it. I would never be on a deer trail to walk parallel-wise, and I would only ever be crossing any deer trails that I came across at one point, um, you know, which is, you know, if you're getting to a, a location that has heavy deer traffic, you're often going to come across, you know, deer trails, of course, deer sign. Um, you know, I just always try to cross them perpendicularly and I was able to do that with this piece of access and this particular way in, I can get to almost any stand location because this hollow basically ran the middle of the property. So I could get up to any ridge that I needed to get to. I could get to like close to any food source I needed to get to because they were both on either side of this hollow. Yeah. Winning half the battle for sure. Just doing that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, talk to us about some of your biggest failures with habitat changes and uh, what you learned from them and then some of your big successes. Oh, man, failures. There's, there's, you know, lots of those. (laughs) How do I pick? At least you're (laughs) honest, buddy. At least you're honest. Yeah, just like the rest of us. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, I had pretty good success with that first one, right? And so I think my biggest failure was I was probably just a little too confident with the first couple that I did because I really had the right tools, right? I had a tractor that I was using, you know, or I had a farmer come over and help and, you know, I had the implements that I needed, and then when I went to my dad's property the first year, you know, my plan was I didn't want to change anything a whole lot, right? Uh, as I'd mentioned, I'd talked to, you know, Jeff Sturgis and kind of gave him what my idea was, and he was like, yeah, he's like, I think, you know, you don't want to do too much. I think where that where the one field is, since they're already kind of moving in that direction, that's their line of movement already. If you wanted to put food in there to sweeten it up a little bit, you know, that would be probably an appropriate thing to do, but probably not much more than that just until you get really understand the lay of the land. And so that first year, I went in, and I wanted to basically. So I wanted my. I wasn't even going to hunt it, but I wanted my. My dad was going to come up from the Carolinas to hunt, it, and I wanted him to be able to have an opportunity at a deer. 
Um, and knowing that he was only going to get up for maybe like two or three days for the whole season, you know, I wanted to try to give him, you know, a shot opportunity. So what I ended up doing was I ended up taking a rototiller. It almost killed me because the rototiller was too heavy to pick up by myself and put on the back of my truck. So I ended up driving the rototiller from the shed that's on the property, like all the way down this creek bottom up this trail. So, I mean, it took me like an hour. And this thing, like to walk it, it will take you five minutes. Um, it took me like an hour to get the rototiller. I had to cross a stream with it, like to get up into this food, and then like an hour back. And so what I basically wanted to do was just rototill along the edge of the timber line before you get into the field. Because I really just wanted to put like a five-foot swath, maybe six-foot swath of fall food just around that edge because I wanted to pull deer to the edge so my, I could set my dad up in one of the trees that was close to the edge there so he could get a shot opportunity. Sure. And so I went in there, and it was brutal. It was I, I didn't realize – now, this is this is more mountain ground where this property is. That's on the top of a mountain. It's called – well, you outlook Buffalo Mountain. It's, it's on your way to go into Somerset. I don't know if, if uh, you're familiar with where Somerset is. But oh, yeah. Yep. It's it's headed out that it's headed out that way. So you're up on top of the mountain, you know, and it's just it's rocky. The soil's rocky. It's the, the pH is really it's really acidic. And so when I'm rototilling, I'm just running into these huge rocks, like ridiculously big rocks. Like it just made rototilling really really challenging. Finally got it rototilled up, and I was rock picking all the rocks out of it. I fertilized it. I limed it. I came back a little later. So the one fail was is I just didn't have time to, like, amend that part of the soil before I did any work to it. It was basically just like, we're going to see what happens. And so I threw the seed down, and it, I forget what I even planted there. It might have been, it might have been like, winter wheat, I think, might have been what it was. Um, and, uh, and it was just a massive failure. Like, it came up in patches and spots. But, I mean, it wasn't enough for a deer to probably even notice that it was there, <laughs> to be honest with you. And I went through all this. I went through all this work and all this effort to do it, um, but you know I wasn't deterred by it because then the following year I came back and I did a legit plot where I got an implement for the back of the you know the four wheel or the side by side, and disked it up you know which was challenging because it's really thick grass in there. It had never been a, a plot before. It's always just been like grasses and and and, and crap in it. Um, and then I put a fall plot in that last year. And it came up like gangbusters. The deer mowed it off. It looked like a putting green. Like right. it just like it, it didn't have a chance. Right. Um, what implement was that, it? Clint? Oh man, I forget what it's called. It hooks. It, it basically just hooks into the back of like a you know a, a typical hitch that you would you know that you would have on the back of your truck. I guess what is that two inch two inch receiver? Yeah. Um, yeah. It just basically it was like a hundred and fifty bucks or maybe two hundred bucks on online. It was like the something hog where you basically yeah, you're using the weight of the four or of the ATV like when you gas it for it to squat. Okay. And then yep. you want to basically run a figure eight and it'll and it'll cut the soil up for you. Um, gotcha. Didn't work great, but it worked good enough that we got a pretty good plot put in, um, and it worked pretty well. It drew deer. Had had some ca- had a camera on it and had plenty of deer showing up there. Bucks still weren't using that though. Like I really had very the shooter bucks that were on that property. I did not. I got two camera pictures of shooters on the edge of that property two different times, but not once did I ever have them in the plot, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, for sure. Lack of cover yeah. around the edges, you think, or what? 
it's, it's this property is really funny. Like, I, like I said, the first year I, I put this small plot in that failed miserably, you know, hoping to help my dad out. But I never hunted it the first year. I hung a handful of cameras on it, and I watched it from afar. Like I, I would scout it. Uh, I actually scouted it during deer season and didn't even hunt it just to see if I could see any deer. I'd run into a couple deer here and there. Um, and I, other than that, I just watched the cameras for like a year, trying to understand how they moved. And it wasn't until last year that I finally kind of figured figured it out, which I guess would have been the second year we had the property. But it was the end of last year where I recognized that on the west side of the property, those deer I will see on the south part of the property and over around that food plot once in a while, right, bucks, that is, right? But they never go to the north part of the property, ever. Like the northwest part of the – or the northeast part of the property, the northern part of the property, never. They stay on the west side of the property and the south side of the property. And it's really odd because it's only 60 acres, right? You would figure they would, they would cover it, right? The deer that I would see on the east side of the property, I would see on the north side of the property, the east side of the property, but never the west side of the property, ever. Which was just really – so what I kind of figured out was that there's two distinct lines of movement on that property, right? And I think that it's dictated partially by the neighbors because the neighbors have a big hollow that's been clear-cut. And so they're on the west side of the property, I think they're betting on the neighbor that they're coming over. We had some pear trees and some apple trees on that on that western side of the property. They're hitting that. There's some other food source that, that the neighbors have that, that they're, is their destination feeding area that is more to the south. Right, because that's I always got north and south movement on that side of the property. Uh, when you go right, to the, yeah. oh, go ahead. I think you're right. I mean, think about that a big thicket, clear cut like that, and then you have some yep. some uh, mass yep. like that. Yeah, you're definitely right. Yeah, and then the deer I would have in the north part of the property would make it to the west. They would be or the east. I'm sorry. They would make it over to that food plot, and where they were bedding was like a big pine thicket at the edge of our property and the neighbor's property. And then there's this big, like, grass area. And then uh, the north part of our property, like, when you get into the hardwood, that had been – that had caught on fire some years ago. You can still see all the burnt trees that are back here and stuff. So it's super high stem count, super thick, just nasty. And so those deer, you know, are basically living there, and there's a ton of oaks on the northern part of the property too. So they have no reason to ever really leave that unless it's to go to the big water hole that's by the food pot because that's the other benefit – there's a natural spring on that property that feeds two big water holes. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. And, there's actually, and there's a crab apple tree that hangs over that water hole as well. Oh, baby. Yeah. So needless to say, that was usually every mature deer I see on that property is on that side of the property. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's good to hear about the successes that you turned around from your failures because sometimes that could be the best teacher, especially I'm, I'm guessing Somerset's still part of the Laurel Highlands out there. And that's, yeah, I've, I've never seen anything but mountain laurel and rocks and hemlocks out in that country there. So you're, yeah. you're fighting an uphill battle for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. Now this year I went in and I did a frost seeding uh, just because I was like, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to get to do this year because the plan was really to try to put some soybeans in that spot. And then there's another big field on the top of the property that I was going to potentially put in. I'm on the fence about doing that now just because of access reasons. But um, but I was like, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that smaller plot because that plot I put in in that fall food last year, you know, it was right around an acre. Um, and so I went in and I frosted it with clover this year and just, 
and I uh, lined it and fertilized it, you know, in the during the winter and then frost seeded it. And man, clover popped like no one's business. <laughs> like I had clover everywhere, um, which was awesome. And then when I went back to hang cameras and stuff and, and, and checked the property, it was a ton of it was nipped off, so they're hammering that pretty good. Um, and then I did do a uh, an overseed of uh, of oats this year too, so they'll have something for for winter. And then next year the plan is to try to put some is to try to put some soybeans in. I think that the plan is start really using more of the the buffalo method of um, of food plotting or habitat work, which is using yeah. less herbicide and doing more rolling and killing the grass to create a thatch uh, for you know cover from the heat, but also you know retaining moisture. So that's kind of my next my next plan. Very nice. Well, I would say that uh, you're not lacking ambition. That's for darn sure. I mean, there's some <laughs> great stories there, and 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 how you kind of came from shoot. I mean, Cloverfield with a with a big tractor to the Buffalo system, which we haven't discussed a ton on here yet. We're hoping to get uh, Dr. Grant Woods on here and and give us mm-hmm. the the grand tour. But that's that's a a great trend and a great way for the soil. Like you said, soil health. Um, moisture retention, less herbicide. Yeah. That's all awesome. I can't wait to see how you end up with it and, and how it works for you. We're, we've done a little bit of that here. Um, we're getting some mixed reviews that worked well for me last year. This year, it didn't work as well for me. So I think it's, it has a lot to do with Mother Nature uh, too. But yeah. you have some yeah. uh, some really good stories there. Now, moving on. What triggered you to then go? Out of state, so I want to hear about a, some pretty cool out of state experiences you've had. Maybe a, a real cool hunt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Brian's properties in Ohio. I hunt Southern Ohio. I know you've done well down there. I guess mm-hmm. kind of explain what you know, kind of bug you got where you're like, hey, all right, I'm I'm working or I'm working hunting PA here, but now I'm gonna jump out of state. Like, what happened and and how'd you do that? Right. Yeah. Um. I don't know, man. It was it was one of those things where well, actually, I do know um, a couple of things. I think the first part of it was that as I was getting more into you know bow hunting and um, as I was learning and kind of developing, if if you will, you know, and kind of better understanding strategy and and uh, stuff like that, and I started having success like on the farm, where it's like I was starting to like see the deer I wanted to see, you know what I mean, I was able to get on the deer, whether I was able to release an arrow or not, sometimes, you know, you know, luck's just not on your side or whatever, but I was having encounters that I wanted to have, and so the other thing, you know, the next step for me was, was to try to figure out how to, I, I always like to challenge myself, no matter what I'm doing, I like, you know, as you can see, like the ambition to do the food plot thing and kind of advance it, and now to go to the buffalo thing isn't because I think it's, you know, yes, I think it's a good a good way to do it, but I could be content like just having a food plot the nor- like the normal way, right? Right. But I like to challenge myself and see is like, is there more I can do? Is there something better I can do? And what's the next thing? Um, that was kind of the same thing with the out of state hunts. I was like, what's like the it. next solution? Like, what? Where can the next challenge come from? So that was the one part of it. The other part of it was, is you know. I like hunting PA, you know, and like we were talking about earlier, you know, it's like I'd like to shoot a Pope and young deer on public ground, you know, in Pennsylvania. I think it's a great, it's an exceptional animal on public ground in Pennsylvania. Um, You know, there was a certain caliber of deer that I wanted to have an experience with that I knew in PA in many instances, 
particularly on the farms that I that I had access to that were family farms, just the location within the state that you know where they're located. It was going to be really hard pressed to find that caliber of deer that I wanted to have an encounter with on that property. You know, to grow one there wasn't probably going to really be an option because of all the neighboring hunting pressure and stuff like that. It was going to be really cha- really challenging. Also, you know, as much habitat stuff as I was able to do, you know, my father-in-law was still pretty, you know, resistant to doing more to where we could really create, you know, an area that we could hold like one or two mature deer and watch them and let them get to maturity so we could potentially have like a 140-inch deer or something like that to hunt on our property, right? Like I knew that that probably wasn't going to be the case. So if I wanted to have an encounter with this caliber of animal that I knew, rather than being mad about it, which, you know, just change my circumstance right that's more of like how i operate it's rather than beat my head against the wall that i'm just going to up and change what i need to do in order to achieve the goal that i have and so that was really how hunting out of state came about because i was like you know where can i go to have an encounter that i want to have and have you know you know more mature deer and you know better deer numbers and better um age structure and and all that and i really just did some reading online and was like you know what i'm gonna go to ohio and I was like, where am I going to go? I did some reading and studied some maps. And this is like pre-Onyx. I think I was just using Google Earth. And I was like, this looks like a good spot. And so I went. I did a scout during the summer. Um, found a couple of spots that I liked. And, you know, went back that November and uh, got on some good deer the whole time that I was there. And I blew an opportunity on a really good deer on like a Monday. Um, next day I turned around and shot a nice Pope and young deer the next day at like one thirty in the afternoon. So it's like, wow. you know, I, I went there and basically just read sign and, and figured out where I wanted to, where I needed to set up based on the sign I was seeing. And, um, I hunted the hot sign and, uh, and was, was rewarded. You know, it's, and that was basically all there was to it. Like I knew I was in the right area. Cause every day I was seeing bucks. I saw bucks every day. And, and that really kind of gave me the bug, man, because I went, <laughs> You know, to a piece of property I had really no clue of, uh, you know, and walked into an area and found some good sign and just trusted my gut, really. And, look, there's a portion of luck on it, too. You know, it's like I kind of stumbled onto this area because, truth be told, I literally (laughs) – this is a funny story. So I actually got lost uh, walking into the woods because I walked in, was hiking into the spot I wanted to to hunt, and I had a GPS with me and stuff like that, and I knew where I was kind of going from, like, the, the summer scout. And I walked in, and it was it's super nasty thick. And as I'm hiking through, I'm working my way through. I must have hiked for about 45 minutes to, to get to my spot. Once I was about 45 minutes in, then all of a sudden, my GPS, like my batteries died. It must have been on in my bag like the entire drive out to Ohio and then some because I had dead batteries. And so I'm like, oh, shit. I'm kind of looking around. I'm like, I don't – I'm not quite sure how to get out of here now, right? And so I kind of had to, like, gather my faculties and be like, all right, don't be an idiot figure out how to get out of here. So classic, like, getting lost story, like, I walked and realized after about 30 more minutes of walking that I just walked in a circle. And I was like, yeah, this isn't good. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, all right, how am I going to find my way out of here? I'm in a place I don't really – I don't know at all, right? It looks entirely different than whenever I was here in the summer. So I was like – and there was just blow down everywhere. So there wasn't like there was like, oh, that big oak tree. Like, there was nothing like that, (laughs) right? Um. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go up to the top of the ridge. I was like, and if I have to, I'll, I'll climb, get in my stand and climb as high as I can climb and see if I can get a visual. I was like, because I, I came in near a river, 
I was like, I just need to see the, if I can see the river and I can just hike back toward the river, I was like, then, you know, I'll eventually find my truck, you know. And so I did that. Once I got to the top of the ridge, I could actually see the glare from the sun coming off the river. So then I knew which direction the river was specifically. And so I just started hiking toward that. And then I got to a part to where I was like, I finally knew where I was at. Like I hiked for like another 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And I finally recognized, I was like, oh, okay, I know where I'm at now. And then it was getting late in the day. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to hang a stand here, right? So I hung a stand there real quick. And I was like, I'll come back and hunt it in the morning. So I hiked down, and as I was hiking down, I was scouting my way out, and I saw, like, hammer rubs, I saw tracks, I saw scrapes, and I was like, all right, cool. I was like, I'm definitely coming back here tomorrow morning, and I'm, and I'm hunting this and seeing what it's got, because, like, this, the rubs were, like, fresh, like, the shavings were still on the ground. Nice. The, the, the scrapes were fresh, you know, like, they had just been tended to, so I knew I was in a good spot. So I came back the next day, and I wasn't in the stand like, I don't even know, like, it was first light. I mean, it was, like, that light where you can just, like, your eyes have just adjusted and you can see and pick out, like, if it's a buck or a doe, but de- it's definitely not shooting light. Um, and I had a buck walk up right underneath my stand, like, literally underneath of me to where I could hear him chewing on green briar. You know what I mean? And so from there, I was like, man, you got to be kidding me. And then I was in the chips the rest of the time. Like, I, I think that first set I saw, I think I saw four bucks that day, four or five bucks that day. And every morning I had grunting and carrying on behind me, sparring, fighting, bucks tearing up trees. They'd walk up near me and I'd see them. One I filmed for like 45 minutes just ripping a tree to shreds. And that was the one I blew the opportunity on. And that was, uh, that Holy hurt. Cow. And then the next day, you know, uh, a big, you know, I had a couple bucks come up in the morning, first thing in the morning. I couldn't get it. Well, one was a shooter. I just couldn't get a shot at him. And then uh, 1.30, this buck came through and I arrowed him at 23 yards and that was it. But it was it was like watching a TV show, man. That was the kind of rut activity I had for like three straight days. So now when I go to Ohio, if I go back to that area, I go to that spot. And I was there last year, saw bucks pretty much every day, saw deer every day. Like I just there was a there was one that was I had some cameras out last year on it. There was one who was about 145 inches, and that was the one I was trying to catch up to. And we just kept missing each other. Like it was okay. like any time I'd make a move, he would be somewhere else and I'd make a move and then he was back where I was before. It was just like cat and mouse for like nine days. So I had a shooter shooter the first morning after being in the stand that, you know, right after first light or whatever, it was like a little after seven o'clock. I had him at six yards. I was a full draw on him and had him at seven yards or six yards. And then he walked out and I had him again at 16 yards. He stopped broadside and I, and I let him go because I had that bigger one that was around. And uh, so I let that one walk, which maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty, but I tell you what. That's, yeah. That's, you have me fired up for deer season, Clint. <laughs> that's what I'm talking <laughs> that about. That story right there, buddy. Oh, man. I am fired <laughs> up. Yeah. Yeah. I went to southern Ohio then, too. I mean, like the second half. So was that like, not in southern to... Ohio? I thought maybe that was. Well, this so this was Southern Ohio. Like I always get confused because like this was in like the Conshohocken, Muskegon area. Okay. Um, which I know people refer to that as Southern Ohio, but like. But it's not actually it, all the way down. It, yeah. Like I like the next like the one year I went like all the way down like near the border of Kentucky mm-hmm. and hunted an area down there. Um, that was just gnarly, man. And we had some hammer deer on camera. I actually went down uh, with my buddy Chad. He owns a. Texas Outdoor Gear, 
Nice. And I went down with I went down with him, and he and I were hunting together for like ten days down there. Low deer density, uh, tough, rugged hunting, um, thick, nasty, you know, mountains. So because you're kind of near that area where it's close to West Virginia too, so you get those kind of mountains and and stuff. Um, but we had some like, you know, one forties to mid one sixty sixties on camera on public, Jeez. and and they were just hammers and. But the deer densities were low, so you know it's one of those things where you're not going to see a lot of deer, you know. And but when you do, I mean, there's a chance that a giant's going to step out. And uh, <clears throat> we had a couple of deer though. I thought we had a good chance on. There was two in particular. One that was like probably mid 150s um, that I was trying to hunt, and then there was another area that there was. I guess that deer was probably like in the 140s. It was good deer uh, on this ridge that I was trying to hunt and just couldn't catch up to. To either of them, and just to kind of give you an example of like the low deer numbers, the uh, well, we also found out there was like some some EHD that outbroke there too that knocked the deer the deer numbers down, which might have been why we didn't see the the bucks we were planning to see. But I hunted ten days, all day six, and I saw three deer in ten days, all bucks, but I only saw three deer in ten days. Holy cow! What year was that? Yeah. This was. Not last year, but the year before, so it would have been like 2017, I think. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, wow. but that was, but part of it is, man, it's like, I'm, I'm I'm lucky, man. I got some friends like Chad and, you know, and, and guys like, you know, Greg Litzinger and stuff like that that are buddies of mine that I like to spend time with or hunt with, you know, in Chad's case, you know, hunt with him. And then my, my buddy's back from Bedford, my buddy Matt and my cousin Donnie and then our buddy Luke out in Montana. Like, I just, I'm fortunate I have good hunting buddies that we all have the same mindset. Like, we like a challenge. Like, for us, it's the tougher the hunt, the more challenging hunt, the hunt, the better. Um, the more we get out of it, the more we get into it. Um, and so we're always kind of looking for, like, the next hard challenge, which kind of is why public land appeals to me, you know, um, is because I like that. I like that challenge. I like it to be, I don't know, my mindset is, like, nothing nothing great has ever come easy. Um and so yeah. I prefer I prefer to go to the places that provide the most resistance. And some people might call me a fool because I eat a lot of tag soup because of it. Um, but it's just it's that chess match in those challenging places that I like. You know, it's like that's you know when I went to Montana to do the to, to hunt muleys and elk. It's like we just went to public land where anyone could hunt. And I was at full draw on two different mule deer, and I was at full draw on two different elk, and one of them we killed. You know. Um, and so it was, you know, it's just, it's that part of the, the chase and the, the challenge is part of what, is part of what I, I like and what draws me to those out of state adventures and no different than this year, going to Iowa this year. So target rich environment, hopefully it'll be a little easier. Hopefully I see more deer. Hopefully I kill a big one. <laughs> yeah. You and me both, buddy. Uh, what, what zone did you draw? Uh, zone six. I'll be down around the Farmington kind of area down near the border of, uh, now down near, near the uh, Missouri border. And when are you going? I'm also in Zone 6. All right, nice. Uh, I'm going the first two weeks of November. So, actually, I think I'm leaving Halloween, and I'll hunt through, like, the 17th, I think, of November. That's awesome. I think um, we're going to have to get together when you're down there, man. We're uh, going down on the 1st, I believe, and probably hunting through, like, the 11th, something nice. like that. Um, you know, weekend to, to Monday, the following Monday nice. type thing. Um, Heck yeah, man! We should definitely get together. I'll uh, yeah. offline. We'll uh, we'll share our, our, our potential location. Sure. So we don't give away. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, yeah, I no, mean, we, I was going to ask you, you hunt in public, or that way we can get together. 
Yeah, no, definitely. We'll have to. We'll definitely have to make it work. Are you uh, hunting public, or, or what type of stuff are you looking for down there when you get there? Uh, all public. Um, I was actually there in March and, oh, good stuff. and did a, did a scouting mission for like three days ish with John, the co-host of my podcast. John, uh, he lives in Iowa. He lives right there around Farmington. Yeah. Um. So he's hunted that public that I'm going to be on. Um. In the in the past, he hunts it every year. Just okay. the, he has a lease that's right near that public as well, and so for him, it kind of it's based on what deer he has showing up to the farm when, whether he'll hunt the farm or whether he'll hunt the public. You know what okay. I mean? So a lot of times early season, like, he'll usually have a few bruisers on the public, so he'll chase them, and then November, you know, well I shouldn't say November, but late October into November, you know, that pre-rut into rut time frame, his lease that's when his lease really heats up. Okay. And so that's usually when he'll start to spend most of his time on on his lease at that point, unless he's just got like a drop drop down, you know, drag out, you know, bona fide stud that he sees on public that he's on. Then he'll you know stay on the chase, but, which could happen. Um, yeah, which can totally happen. I mean, last year I know for sure in the two areas specifically that I had scouted, the one area there was a 172 or 175 inch deer shot. Uh, unfortunately, it was poached. Um, oh, no. by the neighboring neighboring farmer, like bona fide post the guy was prosecuted and so forth. Um, and then another guy, a local, killed a 189 inch deer in like one of the other areas I was I was scouting. Yeah. Buddy. So yeah. So there's there's some legit some legit deer deer down there. And then John sent me a picture of one um, that uh, this was in June and this deer was probably already pushing. Um, 150, maybe 160 in June. Like 150s, definitely 150s. Definitely in the, the high 140s, if not 150s, at, at the beginning of June. Holy cow! And have you ever hunted Iowa? Never. No, nor have I. Nor have I. I just hope I don't fall apart. Like I'm right. usually, it's, it's funny. My brother-in-law called me last night. We were talking about it, and because I was hunting a particular area around here, there's a deer that I had on uh, that I've been kind of watching, and he's using this one terrain feature. Um, on this one piece of public that there's a handful of mature deer that are using this specific area that I've been kind of watching. And I went out and did a morning hunt for him because he's killable in the morning right now. So I was, you know, being aggressive and hunting some mornings in October, September even, um, because he's showing me that he's killable. Um, so he was asking me just about, you know, you know, said something about, you know, taking a shot or whatever. He's like, you know, what do you think? You know, if you draw back on something in Iowa, he's like, you know, what do you think you'll do? I was like, I don't know. I was like, because, like, I don't really, I don't get too worked up when I shoot. Uh, typically, even the one I, even the, the nice one I shot in Ohio, it's, um, I was pretty cold like, yeah, when I did zone. it. How afterwards yeah. I fall apart. Right, right, right. That's usually that's usually my mo. Like, prior to the shot, I'm usually pretty like I'm so focused on what's happening that like I don't even think about anything else. Yeah. Um, nice. and just kind of go on autopilot and. And just, I don't know, go as cliche as it sounds like going to kill mode, where, mm-hmm. like, I just, I'm a predator, and I'm trying to kill. You know what I mean? That's kind of, like, I guess where I go mentally. Um, and then once I release the arrow, then my knees shake, and I fall apart, and, like, lo- and I lose my mind. Um, but I was like, I don't know. I was like, if I saw something walk up that was, like, 170 inches, I was like, I don't know how. I was like, I would like to think that I could keep it together and just execute the shot. I was like, but, you know. One never knows until they experience it, so we'll find One out. One never before. knows. You got that right, my man. Seriously, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I I met John before at uh, one of the trade shows, and actually, 
Todd Prignance was from my hometown in Grand Haven, Michigan. So oh, okay, I've yeah, about yeah. known Todd for a long time. I know that's how they kind of got together way back when. But uh, yeah. that's pretty cool, man. You guys are going down there and hang out. And, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely hit you up when, uh, when we get down there. And I'm pretty excited. So your stories tonight, yeah. though, I am pumped up. I want to go hunting right now, but we don't open for another week. So Yeah, I, I, I open, man. I've already been out. Like, that's I've had awesome. Three, three sits already. How are those going? I know Brian's been out, too. Yeah, um Yeah, Clint's got one up on me. I've only been out twice. He's in the um early WMA out. Oh, there's different dates. The oh yeah. And then I'm in the early one on the west side, yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So I mean they've been they've uh so the the first set I did I actually did just prior to the open of like R W M U because I had a, a buddy who had a uh a red tag farm access. And so we went out to, to try to fill a red tag. Um, and that was just a cool sit because I never get to hunt like over beans and stuff like that. And it was just sitting over a bean field trying to, trying to, you know, fill some doe tags for this farmer. Um, so it was just cool. You know, I'm filming this year, which I didn't do it all last year because I kind of gave it up. And now it's like I'm, I'm filming again. Um, and so it was just nice to kind of get the camera out and work out the kinks of like getting in the stand and get back in the saddle because I, you know, I, you know, pretty much exclusively saddle hunt. So it was nice just to kind of, you know, work out all my setup and you know, I changed my climbing situation this year, like different, you know, using a different little bit of climbing situation. So it was nice just to kind of work out the kinks, get up a tree, get everything set up, film some deer. It was cool. You know, no arrows were released. And then we had our opener last Saturday um, in this WMU. And I actually, the wind that I needed to hunt, like the one deer that I wanted to hunt or that one terrain feature I wanted to hunt, I didn't have the right wind. I could have went and tried to fill a doe tag or whatever, but, you know, it was uh, it was kind of warm, and so I was like, eh. I was like, other than trying, I had a had an engagement, a, a, a business thing I had to take care of in the afternoon on that Saturday too, so I didn't really have time to properly take care of a doe and try to keep the meat from spoiling and stuff like that. So my buddy Wilson had a deer that he had uh, been watching over the summer and had been glassing him in the mornings and watching him come out of out of food heading into bed and kind of knew what his path was, had him on trail camera and stuff like that, and so. Uh, we had the right wind for that hunt, so I actually went with him and set up above him in my saddle and filmed him um, that day. And we saw his shooter. It just he never presented a shot opportunity. It's uh, he stayed kind of in the cedar thicket and never he didn't take his usual route that he would typically take. Um, so, but we saw a buck a doe first thing in the morning. Saw his shooter, so that was cool. And then I went out and put a hunt on for that deer I was talking about in that particular terrain feature. I stole a little time in the morning from work I went out before work and set up and hunted and you know went into work a little late that day and uh and just I didn't see anything you know it was unfortunate because I, I needed a little bit of a, uh, of a north wind and I had a northwest wind and uh and I knew it was going to shift straight west on me right about as it's starting to break daylight a little bit you know right around six o'clock it was going to shift west for about I think what I was seeing was about an hour. It was supposed to shift west and it was supposed to shift back north. They um, were northwest around 7 o'clock. And this deer particularly likes a north wind and a west wind in this particular area. The only time he'll move in the morning in this spot, um, he'll move on – well, actually, he'll only move in the morning usually with, a, with some type of north wind. He will move on a straight west wind at night out of his bed to food. He'll come back to bed with a north wind through this area. Um, and so – it, I had a decent win for it, but all of a sudden, like, it switched on me. And for whatever reason, I don't know why. It's like the meteorologist was wrong, apparently. But I had 
I basically had the, a northwest wind for the first part of the setup. It shifted west like it said it was going to, and then it shifted southwest, which was ridiculous, and then it basically shifted southeast on me. And I was like, oh, and then at that point, I just got down. I was yeah. like, all right, I'm going to end up, you know, boogering something up here. I was like, let me just get out of the tree. The wind's not working. Let me get out of here. And so I just basically called it a day and, and hopped out of there and went to work. That's actually a a good lesson that I don't think we've ever actually talked about. Uh, if the wind is actually switching on you in a bad direction, I like how you got down. I mean. Yeah. It's a first for me, man. I'm not going to lie to you. It's uh, that's, that's I've, what I'm in saying. The past, like, I've been yeah. more stubborn. Right. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and, and, yeah, and I'll just be like, man, I'm not getting down and moving all my crap. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's, you know, but it, it's one of those things where I'm just learning. And that's part of the reason why, truthfully, why I kind of moved to, like, a saddle setup because okay. I can make that move a lot easier um, now and can be more strategic about how I'm setting up. Because, truthfully, it's like if I wanted to continue to hunt that day, I could have just switched to different location because there's a ton of oaks that were dropping in the back part of this public that I knew that were that were there. Um, it's along an edge, which is a good a good area. You know, we all know Deer Lake Edge. It's the mm-hmm. edge of this swamp. So, you know, I could have went back there easily, and it would have been the perfect one to hunt that edge, you know. Um, but, you know, I didn't have time because of, because of you know, the, the of needing to go to work and stuff like that. But, you know, in years past, I would have stuck that hunt out for a little longer. But when the wind switched and I recognized, you know, I'm not talking like it switches for five minutes and I'm going to get down. But if it switches and it holds on for, like, 30 minutes, it's like, okay, like this is, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm damaging my opportunity the longer I stay here, so let me get out of here, you know. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, hunt more aggressive this year, but at the same time, I'm trying to hunt smarter while I'm hunting aggressive. That way I can hunt aggressive. Because I think you can, in my opinion, at least you can only hunt aggressive whenever you're hunting smart. Like, I think it's really hard to hunt irresponsibly and hunt aggressive at the same time and expect to have success. Um, you know, it's so, you know, because I think, I think sometimes guys here, you know, dudes like, you know, you know, Cody or, Dan or any of those guys that are known, you know, or the hunting public guys, you know, that, that are known for hunting aggressive, um, you know, they, they take it as like throwing caution to the wind, which is actually the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Like they're very calculated about how they go about like things. The um, you know, not saying they won't take a chance, right. Cause they will hunt, you know, they, they predominantly hunt it off wind. You know what I mean? Like that's, you have to give the deer something to see if you're hunting a perfect wind for you, it's probably not great for him, you know? So, you know, they're definitely hunting chancy wins, but they're, but it's within reason, right? Like that's, that's kind of their whole, their whole MO. Um, and so it's just more, you know, I'm trying to apply more of that this year. It's kind of been one of my goals this year is to hunt more aggressive, um, but to hunt a little smarter so I can be more aggressive. So. I think that's a great spot. That's awesome. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like you said, Dan or Cody or hunting public, any of those guys, they're aggressive. They're going in after, you know, the bedding areas where the bucks are within, you know, 75 to 100 yards bedded. But yep. there's not one time where the wind's blowing from their back at that buck. Right. So like, Yeah, or at least not where they can help it, right? It's like right, a, right, right. Know, and like, if it does, look at down or They've been in a situation whatever. where the wind yep. shifted and they're like, ah, oh, man, and it's like, we, we got to get out of here. Or exactly. if the wind shifted, the deer, you know, winded them because the wind shifted and they're like, all right, well, on to the next one, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think it was a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I, I, I say smart stuff once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I don't know if you want to 
talk for a couple minutes about saddles, or uh, if you got to get going. Yeah, man. Brian and no, I dude, just... I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go, man. We're talking okay. deer hunting. I can do this all day. Yeah, no, and, and now we're fired up. This is awesome. Um, Brian and I both purchased the Tethered Mantis this year as well. Um, yep. And I don't know how long you've been doing it, but we're both new to it. Brian's been on a couple times with it. I have yet to actually hunt out of it yet, but um, can can definitely see the advantages. What are you... What would you say your top three advantages are and, and maybe um, top three things that people might be scared of that that they should probably either maybe try once to get over these fears or, or maybe just a couple things about the saddle? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm using the tethered, you know, saddle as well, as well as, like, their, their Predator platform. So it's like yeah. I, I basically run their entire system. Um, the biggest thing for me in, in changing to it was because I hunt predominantly public land, you know, and I want to, and I, you know, as I'm, every year I get a little bit more, I get more and more aggressive every year. Um, and as I mentioned just previously, it's like I'm, you know, trying to hunt smarter as well and be able to make strategic moves when I need to, to put myself in a better position as opposed to just holding on like I would in years past um, and damaging my opportunities. And so for me, like weight really mattered um, because I don't have, like, I don't hunt very many back 40s and stuff anymore. And so most of my hikes in are hikes, right? Now, some of the urban, you know, more urban or suburban, you know, pieces that I hunt around here aren't long hikes. But when I go out of state, if I'm going to Ohio or if I'm going to Iowa, it's like there's one hike in Iowa that, you know, when I was scouted, like, it's a mile and a half walk just to get to the edge of the timber where I want to enter. You know what I mean? And then it's another however far walk that I have to get to, like, the my location, you know what I mean, which is probably another – 10, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's like at the end of the day, it's like I'm probably going to hike 45 minutes to an hour to get to that spot, you know, I, and then if I'm carrying camera gear and stuff like that, it's like I really don't want to be carrying 40 pounds of stuff, you know. Not only that, but it's like also I'm not a big dude. Like I'm, I'm a small guy. I'm like, you know, I'm, I, I think I was 5'9 at one point. I feel like I've shrunk. I'm probably 5'8". <laughs> um, you know, and so carrying like a big – stand with long sticks it's like that's a, like they're typically wider than i am and and taller than me you know what i mean like there's right. a lot for me to manage just outside my own body frame um which makes it you know challenging for me to get through brush and stuff like that and just as much noise as you make carrying that stuff through brush you just you know it, it just I, I for years thought i was like there's got to be a better way got to be a better way and then i met greg and those guys and uh godfrey from tethered and he introduced you know i met him and of course was introduced to saddle through him and as soon as I got into it, like, I loved it. Like, it was immediately, I was like, yep, I don't know that I'll ever hunt out of another tree stand unless it's something that's pre-hung somewhere that I'm just going to walk up and sit in, right? Um, you know, so that to me was, like, the first thing was just the weight. The second thing was the bulk, right? I'm getting rid of all that, rid of all that stuff that's, that's around me, right? And then the third thing, and it's not really three, it's, like, seven more things, but the third thing was just the advantage once you're in the tree. Like, all the shot opportunities you have in the tree, your ability to be stealthy in the tree as far as, like, and some people will say, well, you, like, you're moving around in the tree. It's like, yeah, I am, but, like, I can keep the tree between me and the deer. Right. You know, and I had a perfect case study last year while I was hunting. Uh, right before I left for Ohio, I was hunting my dad's property, and I was in a hurry to get into this tree. It was actually near the food, and I was trimming this branch. And I was just, I was in such a hurry, I didn't pay attention to what I was trimming. And it was literally the, the branch that you did not want to cut because everything was going to fall. Like that entire side of cover was going to be gone, right? And that was where I was expecting deer to come from. And that's what happened. And 
I didn't have enough time. To, I didn't have enough time to switch locations. And so I was like, all right, whatever. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to set up here. It's windy. I probably won't see any deer anyway. Like, whatever, you know. So I just sat in, that, sat in that tree, and lo and behold, the deer came from that direction. And I basically pivoted around the tree and kept the tree between me and the deer and kept walking with the deer around the tree to constantly keep me in the, you know, keep me hidden behind the tree from the deer. And that deer was none the wiser that I was there. Had no clue. If you were in a tree stand in that tree, you would have been busted the moment she was stepped out. And she sure. came over. You know what I mean? So that was a big thing. I actually shoot better from my saddle than I, than I ever did a tree stand. And I actually, I'll go one step further and say that I'm probably as good of a shot and maybe even better out of my saddle than I am on the ground. And I don't know why that is. It seems really counterintuitive, but I just, I shoot better out of it. I, 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 think, don't, I, don't. I think because you're really locked in, like your body is really supported and you're not yeah. standing there holding everything up. You're actually being locked in by that saddle. I, well, I that's, feel the same way. Yeah, and that's one of my biggest tips. Like for you know, friends of mine who have turned on the saddle hand that started and they started trying to shoot out of it and stuff like that, they always had like initially they had some like apprehension about it. And, and it's natural because you're getting into this thing that's maybe a little bit foreign, right, and you're used to supporting yourself with your legs and it feels foreign to like, Support yourself off the ground in, in this piece of fabric, right? Um, the trick to really shooting out of it, the trick to really, like, using the saddle and being comfortable in the saddle is that your foundation is no longer in your legs, in your feet, or in your knees. Your foundation for everything in your saddle is in your hips. Right. And, that's how, and that's how you move. Like, you don't really move your feet so much. Like, your feet just move to align with your hips. And that, so when you shoot, like, you want to throw all your weight, like, what you would usually do to, like, you know, press into the ground and give yourself a good foundation to shoot from your standing position, like, when your feet are on flat ground. Like, you want to throw your weight and press into that saddle. Like, you want to almost, oh. almost put, like, counter pressure from your bow into that saddle. Interesting. And just, you know, and that will give you a rock-solid foundation. Now, there are other things you can do where it's, like, sometimes I'll throw a knee up on the tree if I'm kind of having to come out from the side of the tree sure. or whatever the case is. but. You know, you want to just give all your trust and faith into that saddle and put all your weight into it, and that'll give you the foundation you need to, to shoot. Um, That's a great so, way to put it. Yeah, and that was kind of – once I figured that out, it took me, like, two practice runs in my yard the first year that I had it, and then from there it was like – I was like, perfect. I was like, I got it. You know, understand it. Um, and then my second hunt out of it, I killed. You know, and that one was – I drew behind the tree, like, because the deer it was coming, you know, down this trail I was anticipating. So I went back behind the tree. I drew so she wouldn't see me draw. It was a doe. And then I slipped out from the, the left side of the tree, and I picked the tree that's about basketball size. So I could literally shoot from my strong side, so my left side because I'm right-handed, and I could actually shoot back to 1 o'clock because the tree was small enough for me to get all the way around. So I just swung around the side of the tree, and I shot back to 1 o'clock nice. from the opposite side of the tree and arrowed her, and she had no clue that I was there, like, Nice. Yeah, I mean, I've yet – I'm going to knock on some wood here, but <laughs> knocking on some wood. But I've yet to be busted in the saddle. Yet. And I've had some sketch situations where it's like I probably should have been – oh, wait, no, no, no. Take that back. The red tag hunt, I had a buck bust me, but he spent eight minutes below, below my stand, and then the wind finally switched, and he, and he winded me, and then he saw me, and then, and then he bounded it away. But I watched him for eight minutes at, like, three yards. Jeez. Yeah. Understandable. 
Yeah, and I've had them look right at me, and I, and I really think there's something, too, because, you know, I had deer completely stare at me and stare through me, but I feel like you just look like a big, odd-shaped branch when you're leaned back in that saddle. Sure. Like, your silhouette, you're not like this big lump that they don't anticipate seeing. Like, you just look like another big branch. Um, you know, point. so, I don't know, I just, you know, I could talk a million years about saddle hunting just because I, I believe in it that much. Like, that's... To me, I've just seen way too many of the benefits, like the comfort stuff. Like if you spend enough time with it, like different guys get comfortable at different rates. You know, like for me, I I used it and I basically like was comfortable with it from day one. Like people told me, like, you probably want to do some half day sits in it or a couple hours to get used to it or whatever. And I I literally went out and did a half day hunt in it. And then the second hunt, or I guess it wasn't the second hunt because I killed that hunt. The third hunt, I did an all day sit. And that was it. And then from there, it's like I did all day sits all through all through November, all through the rut in my saddle. Well, one thing that surprised me is uh, I've had zero soreness. I've done two, you know, four-hour sits in it, and I thought some of those pressure points that I wasn't used to, guys said, oh, you might get a little sore. You're not in saddle shape yet. But I, I wasn't even sore the next day. Yeah. I, I'm still not sore. Uh, it's you know, just, I, 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 I think some of it's overblown, to be honest with you, because I just and I understand it. Like I was skeptical. Like I, I told Greg that whenever Greg and I started talking, and like because I remember last year whenever he introduced me to it, he was like, "Look, let's get you in a saddle." He's like, "I just want you just try it, see what you think." He's like, "If you don't like it, that's fine." You know, he's like, "But he's like, I think the way you hunt, he's like, I think you're gonna like it." And you know, I had a lot of the same concerns a lot of people have where, you know, I was like, you know, is it safe? Is it comfortable? You know, can I shoot out? Can I shoot out of it? Like all those normal things that people question. Um, but literally after spending, you know, 10 minutes in the yard in it one night and then 10 minutes in the yard in it the next night, I was like, okay, I got it. Like this, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is pretty much the jam, you know? And, uh, and then from there it was just, you know, it was, it was over. I was like, this is the only way to hunt. Like I, I can't fathom hunting, hunting another way and, I, and i'll be the first to admit like I, i'm an advocate of saddle hunting and i think anyone who's into mobile like i hate saying hang and bang because i just think it's kind of a weird term because you don't mm-hmm. want to bang because you want to be quiet <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. you know and i don't like the word i don't like the phrase hang and hunt because i think it's overused it's like this cliche cool person term because like hey i hang and hunt man um but you know i, I think it's more stealth hunting right and, and like if you truly want to be stealthy and you want to be like completely mobile, then I think like saddle hunting to me is the only answer. Like to me, you can only be so stealth and so quiet and so mobile whenever you're carrying a, you know, 20 pounds of standing sticks yeah. around along with whatever you have in your backpack. Yeah. You're not getting you, you know what I mean? Like that's just, you know, and I see guys have arguments all the time online about it, like, well, my stand and my setup weighs X amount. It's like, if I really want to break it down to the bare bones, I can literally use my sticks as a platform that are 17 inches and three of them combined with and steel rope, you know, rope for my right. um, for my t- for my tie off. Those weigh five pounds. My ropes in my saddle weigh probably three, and so I'm at I'm at under I'm at max eight pounds for everything. Max, you know what I mean? Like that's that's everything, right? It's like if I really want to shave weight, like you can't shave, you couldn't shave enough metal off the stand to get your entire sticks and stand set up to eight pounds. Right. They can they can barely get a stand under eight pounds, let alone your entire setup. You know what I mean? So 
you know, the weight thing, if that's the thing, it's like, and you'll hear other, you know, guys say, well, like, you know, weight doesn't bother me. It's like, that's cool. Like, weight doesn't, like, if weight doesn't bother you, then carry, carry more, but I'm all about, you know, efficiency and product, productivity. <laughs> yeah, but, you know what I mean? It's like, like me as well, where you've carried camera gear around for the last six years. I mean, you add that onto a climber with your bottle of water, with anything else, and you hike for more than, you know, 200 yards. I mean, your those shoulder straps want to rip through your your shoulders. I mean, I I oh, can yeah. totally see the advantage to this. And and to your point, I mean, the weight thing. I, I did the mods on my my hawk sticks. I cut them down. I'm gonna do the daisy chain straps for the mm-hmm. the buckles. Um, how are you climbing? Yeah, so I, I use two different two different methods depending on well. So I'll classify it this way. I use two different methods. If I don't know what tree I'm going to get into, and I've, and I've not specifically scouted out a specific tree, and I'm not sure, and I'm maybe doing a little bit of freelancing. Like, I know the terrain feature I'm going to hunt, but I haven't exactly picked out the tree because, you know, I'm just being completely honest. It's like, a lot of times I don't do that until, like, until like the morning I get there. I figure out, like, you know, okay, what's the wind doing? What tree do I need to be in? This is the tree I'm going to get in, and I get into it. Um, if I've been to that place before and I've hunted it before, you know, and I know what tree I'm going to be in, um, then I'll, I'll use a different setup. So for the, for the freelance setups, I typically am using three lone wolf sticks that I cut off to 17 inches. And I've converted the top step to a double step, and then I still just have the single step on the bottom so I can fold that fold that one up. And then I'm basically using am steel as a rope mod, like a quarter-inch am steel as a rope mod to, to tie into the tree. Um, with that, I have uh, a, a, a suader on my left side, and I'll, I'll set my first stick to where the where the double step is as high as I can reach. So it's about close to seven foot, right, ish. And then I'll basically take that that left uh, or that one single step on the left hand side and connect my suader to that. Step up into it, and then I'll have a nader on my right leg, and I'll use a piece of like one sixteenth inch am steel that's looped around the bottom cleat, uh, a tree cleat of that stick. And I'll put my nader into that and push myself up, and I'll be able to get, like, seven foot with that first stick. And then the second and third stick from there, I'm hanging that to where the top step, the double step is about head high. And then I'm able to get my suader up onto that top step, and then I use that to get up. That way I'm getting another 10 feet with each one of those. So with those three sticks, like, I can get about 17 feet um, and then another, you know, about two, two-ish feet with my platform. So I'm usually nice. at about 19 feet with those two, with those three sticks. And that, that um, suader and aider, can you define that for us, just for those who don't know? Yeah, so the suader is essentially, you know, there's a loop. It's, you know, you can do it a couple different ways. Like mine's, you know, is I have a, you know, a metal kind of ring that's on it that pulls it, that I push it down once I put my foot in the loop, it tightens it around my foot. Or other guys will use a system where they just kind of basically make a loop and girth hitch that bottom of that, you know, what is usually um, – uh, not cord. What am I? What am I looking for? It's a strap, and I can't think of what it's. It's not not a strap. It's 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 climbing rated, uh, like basically strap. I can't remember what it's Is called. It now. It's it's just similar to like your lone wolf uh, strap that you have for your um, tree stand or your stick. It's something similar to that, but it's climbing rated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the top, you basically have a carabiner on it. Uh, that's usually sewn, or you can, you know, I wouldn't girth hitch, or I wouldn't, you know, tie a water knot or anything to that because I'd be afraid of it slipping. But this is sewn with, you know, uh, a thread that's rated for, you know, that type of material for sewing that type of material. 
Um, and then I have a small, like, little bungee that actually I connect around, you know, the, the lineman's loop of my of my saddle. That way I can drop it and it just hangs by my hip. And so I take that and that's what I put on that top step, right, or on the first step I put on that first, that first step. And then the nader is a, a loop similar. That is, you can girth hitch it or you can use something to press down to tighten that loop around your foot on my right foot, and it comes up and there's a hook that sits at about my knee. And what it basically looks like is if you've ever used those lone wolf uh, tree, tree set straps that basically have a hook on them where you can kind of just slide your lone wolf stand onto those hooks, that is on your knee basically with the hooks pointing down, right? So, like, it's like a claw, like, coming off of your knee. And you strap that around your knee, and then you're clipping, you're hooking that into that piece of am steel to use that as your next step. And so there's a bunch of videos on YouTube. If you just look up Nader and Swader, you'll see kind of how that climbing mechanism works. It's used for a bunch of different ways of climbing. I use it for sticks. Um, But I don't like to use the Nader once I get off the first, once I get on top the first uh, stick, only because I'm not willing to take the risk of that. It's hard to find in the dark and stuff like that. So it's like I'm willing to do it closer to ground level where if I slip, it's, you know, not a lot of damage done. But I'm not willing to use it as I get further up the tree because if I slip, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always hooked into the tree, but, you know, I also don't want to smash my face off a stick or a tree. So I, uh, I, I usually don't use it once I get to climbing height. Um, and then the second method I use is I actually use a set of wild edge steps, um, and, I'll use, and I'll use the cane method uh, for that. And that will be more, especially whenever I'm on um, shag bark trees, uh, because I hate using a climbing uh, a lineman's belt on shag bark trees. And with this method, I don't use any lineman's belt, and I'm always connected to the tree. And so I use that on shag bark and anything that's going to have loud bark. I try to use that climbing method um, hmm. to ascend. That's interesting. Just that way I'm quieter. And, I mean, the, the cane method is basically you're doing pull-ups on steps. You know, it's right. step one, step one step about stomach height, step the second step as high as I can reach. And I basically kick off the tree and pull myself up. And once I'm up on that first step, the second step that I use as a handhold should now be around my around my stomach, and I basically use a rigger's belt with uh, with a, uh, a climbing carabiner, and then I clip into that step, and that's what I use to be able to work hands free. And then once I'm up there, I then attach my um, I attach my tether into my bridge. That way, it's a second set of safety. That way, when I unclip my um, my rigger's belt to take that next step to kick off to climb up to the ne- next step, I'm still attached to the tree. But the good part is, is that I can loosen that tether as far as I need to loosen it in order to get it high enough over that shag bar to not make noise versus trying to incrementally move a, a lineman's belt up that's going to have pressure on it or a lineman's rope that's going to have my pressure on it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah so I, I, I hiked into a uh, swamp last night, and just, just the freedom of not having that stand on your back. Now, I'm I'm six one, so it's, it's hard enough for me to crouch down and yeah. some thick stuff to get through there, but just having nothing but it, it's basically like a like a couple things on your belt is what it feels like with that uh, saddle harness on, and you could just slip through all that stuff a lot easier, and it, it it's just incredible. I'm I, I think I'm sold on it. I'm I don't see myself not liking it in the future here. I, I put it this way: I like care I like not carrying stuff, or I hate carrying too much more than I have to. Sure. That that I don't know that there would be anything that would make me go back. You know, it's like I was saying before, you know, there's always the argument of, you know, well, I can do anything you can do in a stand. Like, the, the truth of the matter is, 
you can't. Like, I've hunted a bow, right? It's like most of these people who are arg- making the argument, it's like they've not hunted out on a saddle, or they have, and they haven't given it a fair chance, at least in my opinion. Right, right. Um, and, you know, if, if, you know, just, you know, saying that, like, well, I can get into that tree, it's like, well, man, yesterday morning I was hunting out of a tree that was at climbing height was no bigger than my calf muscle, smaller than that, actually. You know what I mean? Like, you would be, it, it would be really hard to put a stand in that tree. As much Absolutely. as it moved, as much as it moved. Now it worked because I was in a saddle, and so it really, you know, it would like when the tree moves, like I move with it. You know what I mean? Like because because you're not in a stationary object that's connected to the tree. Like you're, it's a, a rope that's connected to the tree, so you just kind of move with the tree, right? Yeah. It's not like something that makes you off balance or anything. Um, you know, so you know those who want to make the argument for stands, it's like just say that you prefer a stand. Like it's right. 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 <laughs> You know what I mean? You don't have to like the other thing. You know, you don't have to try to degrade it or downplay its effectiveness you can just say i prefer this other way and that's fine ladder yeah. stand tree stand like i don't get i don't care what you hunt out of um that, like you can kill deer out of all of them there's just more effective ways for people who are looking for a certain type of um, approach that might work better and that's that's sure. all it really is yeah I, I think a lot of guys get hesitant when they get on Saddle Hunter or some of these other sites and they see a lot of guys doing their own mods and they're like, well, I'm not really a do-it-yourself type guy and I'm, I'm just going to stick with this. But you you realize quickly, like, just in two hunts in my saddle, I've already discovered, okay, I don't need to carry a backpack to put my Predator platform in. I could strap it right to my steps and throw it yep. over my step caddy and put it on my shoulder. And it's just yep. – it's it's not complicated. Guys are just figuring out what works best for them. Right. And it, it shouldn't be this big, scary thing that guys are, are afraid of. Right. And DIY mods might seem like it's a little scarier, I think, to your point. I think that's a good point because, to me, it's like I, I call them mods, too, which is probably the wrong word to use. It might turn some people off. But it's really just customization. Right. right. Everyone customizes their gear. You get a tree stand, what's the first thing people do to it? They start figuring out what they need to change to make it the way they want to make it. It's no different with it's no different with a saddle. You're doing you're doing the same thing. You know, now I will agree, like, you know, certain things are gonna be um, you know, load bearing or whatever, you know what I mean? Like those types of things, like I probably wouldn't trust myself. Like I would never sew myself a piece of gear that I'm going to use to to to, to use as load bear a load bearing asset off the ground. Like I just don't trust myself enough to do that. Right. And for that, like, there's plenty of things that you can buy, you know, to, to, to achieve that. You know, so it's not like you have to make everything your, make everything yourself. So, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm sold, man. It's like, it's, it's the only way to fly for me. I mean, that's, uh, that's all there is, uh, that's all there is to it. I mean, if I could sit in and watch TV in my house, I would. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. I, uh, I got mine shipped to my office the other day and, I wanted to hang it up in my office and just start screwing around that day, but there was no load-bearing items in my office, so I had to wait for right. home. But I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. It's just fun, man. I just I, I just like – I think the other part, too, and not the harp one, is is that, you know, it's a lot of a lot of guys, I think, because it's new and it's different, oppose it because then they're not the experts anymore, right? And – I think that that in hunting culture in general is kind of is kind of a thing, right? There's a, like this macho aspect of it, but in a lot of cases, where it's like everyone wants to be the expert. No one wants to be the person who doesn't know something, right? And if you're moving from hunting out of a tree stand to hunting in a saddle, you're kind of starting new, and you're really looking for someone to help you understand because there's not a store to go try a saddle. 
You know what I mean? Like that's, you don't have, like, it's not at Cabela's, it's not at, you know, Bass Pro or whatever. You know, you literally have to find someone, you know, you know, and say, hey, man, like, can you help me out here and show me some stuff? I need to learn, I want to learn how to do this, right? And a lot of dudes just aren't capable of saying, I don't know. Will you show me? You know what I mean? It's like, and, and to me, that's that's part of it. Like they like they want to be they want to be the expert. You know, they want to they want to portray that they know you know know how to hunt. Where it's like, man, it's okay to not know stuff. That's how you grow. That's right. how you figure stuff out. That's how you get better. You know, it's you know if if you just continue to do the same stuff you've always done, you know, you're never going to have any different results. And maybe for you that's okay. And maybe you're killing 200 inch deer and you don't need to change anything. And I wouldn't either. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's different for every every person, but. I think a lot of the resistance, um, and there's less and less resistance, of course, because it's being adopted pretty quickly by a lot of folks. But, you know, I think some of it is is just, you know, you know, change is hard, you know, and, and, and a lot of people don't like change because um, it puts them at a disadvantage in terms of a knowledge base, and they don't want to be viewed as someone who doesn't know, right? And hunting seems to have a lot of that. So, Great information, Clint. You know what? That's a great place to wrap this up. Why don't you tell our listeners, if they want to hear more from you and your podcast, where they can find you? Sure. Uh, so it's Truth From The Stand uh, podcast. You can find it on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, iHeartRadio, uh, YouTube, pretty much anywhere and everywhere that you find podcasts. Um, I am there. Uh, I'm obviously on Instagram as well. So that's at Truth From The Stand, both Instagram and Facebook. And then, can I mention the coffee company as well? Go for it, man. Of course. Yeah. Um, so I started a coffee business for those that are listening that, that don't know. Uh, it was something that uh, my wife and I started together. It was uh, We built it in order to give back to conservation more frequently. Um, we just felt that we wanted to do something where we could create a recurring revenue stream to donate uh, back to conservation. So that company is called Skull Brew Coffee Company, and that uh, website is skullbrew.com, and we donate uh, or skullbrewcoffee.com, um, and we donate 10% of all of our profits to uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Quality Deer Management Association, RMEF, and the Nature Conservancy. Um, and so every time you make a purchase, uh, you make a donation to one of those causes, and at checkout you get to select which cause you would like to like your portion to go to. And uh, with that, that's it, man. That's where I'm at. Great stuff, man. Thank you so much for coming on and, uh, you know, spending the time with us. We really do appreciate it. And, we'll, you know, we'll keep in touch this fall and get together. And, uh, you know, I wish you good luck. Thanks, man. You too. Uh, thanks for having me on. Good luck in uh, Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania, respectively. And then, uh, of course, uh, Iowa for, for for you as well, man. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have to make a point to run into each other while we're there. That'd be great, Clint. Episode number 60 in the books, everybody. I am just humbled and blessed to be sitting here 60 episodes in with uh, the Habitat Podcast and just super excited that all you guys keep coming back and listening. So thanks, Clint, for coming on. I will hopefully see you in Iowa, my friend, and I really appreciate your time on the show here. And everybody else, the listeners, you guys are just awesome. I mean, I've been getting lots of messages sent in and Great reviews on iTunes, which, speaking of that, I'll give you a free decal if you leave us a nice five-star review and some words on iTunes. Guys, I just, I, I can't appreciate it enough. I mean, Brian and I are having a blast doing this. We love your feedback. 
Just let us know uh, what you love, what you want to hear more of, and we'll keep this thing going. I'd like to thank our sponsors. We have 5-2 Outdoors, Killer Food Plots, Packer Max, Cult of Packers, the HuntWise app, and Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Guys, our sponsors help us out a lot. They've been supporting us a lot. And I just want to make sure that if you guys have some time, go check them out. You know, go tell them the podcast sent you. And, uh, you know, we'd just be really grateful if you did that because they help support us. So if you are new to the podcast, be sure to check us out at HabitatPodcast.com. All of our episodes are up there. Brand new website. Bunch of new hats on there. Check us out there at HabitatPodcast.com. Also, YouTube, where we launched a uh, game plan semi-live series where we're trying to follow Brian, myself, and Al throughout the season here and some of our other friends. So that's going to be a video series we're doing to try to kind of keep up with everything in between the game plan episodes. So we're really trying to just do everything we can to give you guys the most current, up-to-date information, and hopefully somebody can learn from it, go out and have a successful time themselves whether it's from listening to a game plan podcast or uh, watching this video series. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. We're doing a lot on there. Be sure to like us and uh, tell your friends about us. I mean, we're not spending huge advertising dollars here, so really word of mouth has been how we're growing, and uh, we really can appreciate anybody who helps. So thank you for all your help there, guys. Now, the next episode or two are very good ones as well, guys, so be sure to stick around. We have uh, our friend Eric from the Quality Deer Management Association coming on, and also we have uh, William Spaulding, the owner of Thalit Camo. You guys might have seen that video that Brian put up on Facebook. We're trying out some new camo this year, so we got him on the podcast as well, which we talk about all that gear. So uh, tune in, and thanks for following along, and uh, we'll be back again soon with another episode as we become better Habitat Managers. Good luck in the woods, you guys. Take care.